on today's show. We are getting to know Zoe. But first, promos and pleases. Andre Psyche is the freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up, Andre Psyche, and add a little creative inspiration to your social media circle. Listeners, listen up. Get 25% off your order at ShadyRays.com by using the promo code GETTING. Use GETTING when checking out to get 25% off on the best sunglasses around. Shady Rays takes extreme pride in their multi-layered lens technology, which is made for high visibility and strength, making it shatter-resistant. Go get you a pair or two by going to ShadyRays.com, perusing their polarized sunglasses, then using the promo code GETTING when you check out. It'll save you 25% on your order. Please subscribe to the Getting to Know You pod on whatever app you're listening on. Please give a five-star rating. Please take some time to write a review. Please friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on social media. Pretty, pretty, please tell someone about the pod. All of your clicking, linking, sharing, rating, reviewing, starring, tagging, and simple old school speaking about the pod is greatly appreciated. And now... Getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And doggone it. And Zoe is the executive director and creator of Delaware Cannabis Advocacy Network, one of thousands of people who have, um, I guess to be like glib about it, legalized, helped to legalize pot in Delaware. So thank you, Zoe, for coming on, letting people get to know you. I'm really excited to hear about this uh, long journey that you've been on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, and thanks for covering our uh, all-volunteer citizen-led efforts to legalize cannabis in the first state. Yeah, and it it was coming back to me when you asked, like, hey, how'd you hear about us? I want to say it actually might have been a Cape Gazette article when you guys, it might have been you, I'm hoping it's you, were protesting out in front of, like, the Exxon on Route 1 by the outlets, maybe, like, three, four years ago before like a march on the boardwalk with that weed um mascot that everybody seems to love yeah that's hempy um (laughs) so yeah we uh along with delaware cannabis advocacy network um delaware normal um have been organizing events throughout the state of delaware for the last 10 years um to raise awareness about uh cannabis and cannabis policy reform and promote um cannabis policy changes to Delaware's laws. Um, so yeah, that was, um, I believe the rally that you were speaking of at the Exxon um, near the outlets would have been part of our um, dispensary protests um, because the medical cannabis dispensaries um, that we, our organization helped fought um, to open um basically backstabbed us and turned around and started opposing cannabis legalization in the state of Delaware. Um, and that's years after failing patients and basically charging medical cannabis patients some of the most ex- 
uh, highest prices in the entire country uh, for medical cannabis. Um, you know, they turned around and they started fighting for anti-competitive amendments that would favor basically only their businesses, a handful of wealthy businesses that have already been licensed to to sell cannabis here in the state of Delaware for medical purposes, mm-hmm. um, as well as advocating for uh, exclusive sales for the first 19 months before any other business would be um, licensed to operate. Uh, they were you know, advocating for those first mover advantages that would significantly um, you know, harm medical cannabis patients in the state of Delaware. It would deplete the medical cannabis supply for the nearly 20,000 medical cannabis patients that are registered under that program here in the state of Delaware. Um, and these are patients that are suffering with, you know, severe debilitating ailments. Otherwise, they wouldn't even be able to, uh, um, you know, apply for the program at all. They wouldn't even be able to apply for a medical card without these severe medical um, ailments. And the medical cannabis dispensaries here in the state of Delaware have been significantly taking advantage of patients, putting profits over patients, and like I said, charging some of the highest prices in the entire country. And a simple Google search shows that some of the same dispensaries that are operating here in the state of Delaware that sell ounces for three to $400 and significantly um, you know, medicinal products like RSO for $100 a gram, sell the same products in competitive states um, that have competitive cannabis markets for a fraction of the cost. Um, You know, the perfect example is Columbia Care, which was the dispensary that we were actually out there um, protesting for, um, you know, over the last few years. Um, Basically, if you do a a Google search, you will see that the same product is sold for half the price in um there's their dispensaries that are in competitive markets like colorado and oregon um so yeah so a few years ago we started um you know a boycott for medical cannabis patients to boycott the existing medical dispensaries um and to raise awareness about what these um mostly multi-state operators are lobbying for and how they're trying to, you know, basically continue the oligopoly that they've established under the medical cannabis program um, and completely ruin the adult use market, outcompete any other new business that would get licensed. Um, and there's significant um, ramifications for what they've been lobbying for and what they're trying to do. So. Um, That has absolutely been a part of our movement. And then, like you said, we also do the Global Cannabis March. We just had our 10th annual Global Cannabis March, um, and it was actually our ninth year in Rehoboth Beach. Um, So we do that every single year on the boardwalk. Um, Yes, so that's part of our many um, events throughout the state of Delaware that we've organized to try to promote cannabis legalization and policy changes. I had completely forgotten about the medical dispensaries and the drama behind that. <clears throat> um, I So you and the um, Delaware Can- Cannabis Advocacy Network had a hand in getting medical marijuana passed? Yeah, well, so um, 
I'm one of the co-founders of Delaware Normal. Delaware Normal was established in 2013, two years after the medical cannabis law was passed, the Medical Marijuana Act of 2011. Um, so when we began organizing, um, that law had already passed, but the situation was is that the state of Delaware had unilaterally um, stalled that program, specifically former Governor Markell um, decided that it didn't matter what the General Assembly passed in terms of legislation, that they were going to put a halt to that program. Um, and although they began issuing medical cannabis cards to patients that were paying um, the premium, which at the time was uh, $125 or $150, there were no dispensaries um, that were uh, licensed in the state of Delaware. And like I said, Governor Markell had actually put a halt to any dispensary being licensed. Um, and this happened for a number of years. Um, and then in 2014, he established um, what he called the governor's pilot program for medical cannabis. Um, and then it allowed only one single medical cannabis dispensary to open. And that was First State Compassion Center. Um, so much of everything that we did when we started in 2013 was focused on fully implementing the Medical Marijuana Act um, that was being stalled. And then from there, um, with the pilot program, we were trying to get the other dispensaries to be licensed and open. Um, the Medical Marijuana Act states that there should have been three operational dispensaries by 2013, and there were supposed to be six separate operational dispensaries by 2014. Um, so when we began advocating in 2013, there were none. And then in 2014, like I said, um, the governor went ahead with licensing only one single dispensary. So um, we organized a group of medical cannabis patients. Um, there was a, a few plaintiffs. Um, medical cannabis patients like Todd Boone and a few other people in Sussex County that just simply had no safe access. The medical cannabis dispensary that opened was all the way up in Wilmington, the, the, almost the furthest northern point of the state where you had all these other medical cannabis patients that had paid their money to the state, um, you know, received their registered medical cannabis card, but had absolutely no safe access. For medical cannabis. Um, so um, we found an attorney, um, Ed Gill from Sussex County, who actually took that case for the plaintiffs pro bono, sued the state in Sussex County Superior Court um, because the law actually stated that if the timeline wasn't met, that any citizen could take action um, with a lawsuit. Uh, in Superior Court. So we were lucky enough to get an attorney to take that case completely for free out of the goodness of his heart. Um, and that case was dismissed. Um, the, it was thrown out of Superior Court. Um, what was called at the time um, lack of jurisdiction. They were saying that Superior Court was not the proper jurisdiction for that lawsuit. But the language in the law actually stated that that was the proper venue. So then it got appealed. Um, lucky enough for us that the same attorney took that case pro bono on appeal. 
And we also lost that case as well. <laughs> um, however, in the meantime, what happened was it put a fire under DHSS and the state to start um, licensing additional um, dispensaries. And just, you know, to try to sum up that story, fast forward um, until 2020, that was um, right before the pandemic. Um, there was only three operational dispensaries. And then there was a host of problems, supply chain issues. Um, I mean, it wasn't even supply chain because it's all in-house in Delaware, but supply issues for medical uh, patients, a host of issues. And obviously, you know, the exorbitant prices, you know, since day one that continued till today. Um, so we put a lot of pressure on the medical uh cannabis program to license additional dispensaries. Um, and they finally opened up that RFP for the, it was actually the third time since that law was um, passed in 2011. And three other dispensaries were licensed, um, which would make the six that were supposed to be operational in 2014. But one of those dispensaries is still not operational. So it's 2023 and we still don't have a fully implemented medical cannabis program for a law that passed in 2011, 12 years ago. Um, and, you know, much of that is by design because some of these MSOs, these multi-state operators um, that own multiple dispensaries in other states and everything, have lobbied um, the medical marijuana program, DHSS, and the director, uh, Paul Hyland, to basically, you know, the same anti-competitive amendments that they're advocating for on the adult use market. They've successfully managed, um, you know, to achieve in the medical cannabis market here in the state of Delaware. Um, so there's been a lot of pushback every time we brought these concerns to the program um, and to the director and, you know, talked about the harms of an oligopoly. Uh, and this is basic economics. Like there are known outcomes of oligopolies when you arbitrarily put caps on, you know, the number of licenses um, and keep that that market um, arbitrarily small, you're going to have the problems that we're seeing with medical cannabis in the state of Delaware, where you have exorbitant prices, basically price gouging, price fixing, um, not enough supply, inconsistent um, uh, supply. I mean, there's just so many issues with the medical cannabis program, um, varying quality, um, a lot of patients don't even, um, you know, patronize the medical cannabis dispensaries because they can't afford it. Um, you know, low income patients have been completely priced out of this uh, market. And um, I, I think that what they're doing is just completely wrong. Um, it's unjust. Um, it's obviously harming patients. And now they've set their sights on the adult use market um, to try to, you know, keep their control of that industry. And if they succeed, then it'll completely annihilate that fledgling industry. So a couple of things just because I don't know if I speak um, legalized marijuana well. So DHS is Department of Health and Services. 
DHS, yes. yes. Uh, Department of Health and Social Services Social here in the state of Delaware. Okay, so I'm super curious. Are they are they the department that approves licenses and dispensaries? Or like, do you know, how does that actually happen when a dispensary, when somebody says, hey, I want to sell medical marijuana in Delaware? So for the medical cannabis industry, yes. Um, the medical marijuana program, which is set up under uh, the Department of Health and Social Services under Delaware's public health agency, um, you know, is in charge for uh, basically uh, regulations, implementation, um, and licensing for the medical cannabis program. Um, however, for adult use, um, it the way that the law passed um, with the adult use law, uh, the licensing, implementation, and regulation um, and compliance is actually controlled by um, Division of Alcohol Tobacco Enforcement. Okay. Um, so it's going to be put with the same enforcement agency as alcohol and tobacco. Got you. And then how or who's the decider in DHSS? Is there a single director? Is there a board of people? Does the governor appoint several people that then majority rules? So there's a director of the medical marijuana program, and that is Paul Highland. Um, there is a special board that approves licensing, um, but it's the program director and um, you know, the program itself that is in charge for regulations. So, you know, when I said earlier that all states that there should have been six operational dispensaries by 2014, the law also states that there could be additional licenses. Um, in fact, it allows for it, it encourages it in that 2011 Me Medical Marijuana Act, but there is absolutely no way that the medical marijuana program is going to allow for additional dispensaries to get licensed. Instead, what they have done is actually grant additional licenses to the previous license awardees. So the people that got the previous licenses um, basically were granted additional licenses throughout the state without ever having to go back through the competitive scoring process or an RFP. And that process wasn't open to any other Delaware resident. Um, it was exclusively for these, um, you know, hand-selected dispensaries. And, you know, what we, part of like the lawsuit back in um, 2015, it started in 2015, um, but it went through 2016. Um, but part of that lawsuit, we actually put in a Freedom of Information Act um, to try to determine um, if there were other eligible um, dispensaries that received a score that would have allowed them to open. Um, and the information that we received was that um, the, actually most of the other dispensaries did also receive a score that they could um, be eligible to be licensed under the medical marijuana program. But instead of granting those licensee or granting those applicants the licenses, um, they just went back to the dispensaries that they had already licensed and just granted them additional licenses. Um, so it's, it's egregious. Like I said, um, it's a state-sponsored oligopoly 
there are known outcomes of an oligopoly. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in the state of Delaware. We basically call the medical cannabis dispensaries, they're a cartel. They're operating completely, um, you know, together. They're price fixing, they're price gouging. All the, all the cannabis in the state of Delaware is pretty much sold for the same exorbitant price. And now they actually have organized and they're calling themselves Delaware Cannabis Industry um, Association. Um, so now, you know, they're officially, uh, in my opinion, colluding, um, but officially joined together in their efforts for everything that they've been advocating for. So I don't know if this is um, even relatable, but it might be. And it might be a stretch. Feel free to put me in my place. So I go to the eye doctor and my insurance changes all the time or the providers who accept my insurance change all the time. My insurance maintained, it stays the same. So I asked the eye doc, I'm like, dude, what, like, why do I have to get a new eye doctor every year? And he's like, basically your insurance is a volume insurance for a doctor to make profit. But the issue is he told me it's illegal for eye doctors to get together to set prices. He said, prices get set for us. And it kind of pisses us off because we can't get together to figure out how we can set prices for things that'll be accepted by the insurance in order to make the profit that they deem as business people. And it sounds like the exact opposite is happening with cannabis where like they're able as industry people to come together and be like, how much do we sell an ounce for? How much do we sell X product for? And maintain that market value. That's kind of amazing to me to hear. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's absolutely what what is happening, um, you know, and people have thrown around the word like antitrust practices um, and things like that. And, you know, we're kind of like in this gray area right now because we have state legal activity, obviously, but we still have a federal government that classifies cannabis as a schedule one. So some of that kind of plays into what's allowing these things and basically, um, you know, the takeover of the market by these very large uh, corporate multi-state operators. This is the big marijuana that, you know, opponents to legalization warned us about 10, 15 years ago. And everybody kind of was just like, you know, oh, that's ridiculous. But what happened was because other states legalized first, it allowed, um, you know, these corporate entities to come in, um, set up shop, establish, you know, their businesses. And then as soon as other states went online, um, they like, you know, basically went hunting for, you know, where they can set up shop, especially if it's um, a limited license market, which is what Delaware's considered. Um, you know, dispensaries like Columbia Care actually tout Delaware um, as the most profitable state in the entire country out of, I forget the, you know, I think they operate in definitely more than 15 states. Um, I, I forget the exact number, but they, they state that Delaware is the most profitable because we have a limited license market. Um, and it basically allows them to, like I said, price gouge, price fix, um, sell their subpar quality cannabis for exorbitant prices and take advantage of patients. And because we don't have, um, you know, insurance coverage for medical cannabis, like I said, low income patients are being completely priced out of out of the market. They can't afford medical cannabis. 
So then you have predatory practices of these places like Columbia Care, like I said, that tout Delaware as the most profitable state in the country that say, oh, the patients can't afford our medicine. Well, here's a credit card that you can use, a Columbia Care credit card that we're going to charge a 20 to 25 percent interest rate. So you can just rack up debt by trying to keep yourself well using, you know, medical cannabis instead of harmful, addictive pharmaceuticals. So it's a crazy situation that we have here in the state of Delaware. Um, and then, like I said, these dispensaries turned around and, you know, basically making their millions off of the backs of disabled patients wasn't good enough. And they're setting their sights and focus on, um, you know, taking over the adult use market and ruining uh, that fledgling market here in the state of Delaware. When the legislation that we just passed um, you know, intentionally, very intentionally, um, you know, focused on small business inclusion into this industry. Um, and they didn't get what they wanted, like they've gotten in so many other states. Um, we've had previous versions of the bill. Um, this was our sixth attempt at legalization. Previous versions of the bill um, had their special privileges in it. And um, through patient advocacy and um, advocacy from our organizations, we were successful in getting those um, competitive advantages uh, taken out of the, the bill that passed and two other versions of the bill. So it hasn't been in there for the last three versions. Um, and they fought up till the day we passed. In fact, they're still fighting. Um, you know, they were at all our hearings um, and they've continued to lobby um, lawmakers uh, with some success to try to get an amendment that would allow them to open before any other dispensary opens and grants their dispensaries um, automatic grandfathered licenses into the new adult use industry plus um, vertical integrated licenses, which won't be offered to any other uh, licensee in the adult use industry. So there's a lot going on. Yeah, no doubt. I was trying to keep track of all of it. Um, vertical. What's the advantage of a vertical use license for them? Well, vertical. So uh, the way that the medical this uh, medical cannabis program was set up is that those licenses are vertically integrated. So the business that owns the dispensary also grows the cannabis and um, also manufactures any of the different um, products like hash, oil, dabs, um, edibles, things like that. Um, so vertically integrated licenses um, are worth a lot of money. The licenses here in the state of Delaware, the medical cannabis dispensaries are worth millions of dollars granting them these grandfathered privileges to allow their vertically integrated businesses um, into the adult use market um, would cripple any new business um, trying to, to get into this industry. Um, and the, the adult use industry is not vertically integrated. Most states don't have vertically integrated adult use uh, markets. Now, that doesn't stop somebody from getting a license in each category. Um, so there's, uh, you know, with HB2 passing, there was the cultivation licenses, the manufacturing licenses, 
the retail licenses, and then there's also laboratory licenses. But in our bill, in HB2 that just passed, um, it's actually a conflict of interest. If you own a laboratory, um, you are not permitted to own um, a cultivation, manufacturing, or retail license. Um, that's not been the case for medical cannabis. And one of the medical cannabis dispensaries, the farm, pre we're not sure if they currently own it or previously own it. We know that it changed hands um, after they were licensed as the farm because um, there was a news story on it um, from 2021, I believe, is when it changed hands. Um, but the farm previously owned the only uh, cannabis compliance facility, um, which is the laboratory that tests all the medical cannabis. So in the new law, that would be a conflict of interest. Um, but uh, the law does not stop somebody from getting uh, one of each license in the three categories of cultivation, manufacturing, um, and retail. And then the point of the laboratory is just to make sure, whatever, there's no pesticides, there's no harmful anything within the pot that people are going to consume? Uh, yeah, well, that, uh, the consumer safety protections, for sure, um, you know, the standardized testing um, for things like you said, like the pesticides, any kind of contaminants, um, you know, to ensure that the cannabis that is, you know, grown and sold in the state of Delaware doesn't have harmful additives, um, things like that. But also, um, it's a, a consumer um, issue in terms of, um, you know, for the labeling, the testing determines how much THC is in there, how yeah, much CBD, how many different cannabinoids, um, a good lab would tell you, you know, the terpene expressions and things like that. And basically um, every, you know, component in that batch of cannabis. Yeah. Then while you're talking, I'm real. I realize as I often do how much I drink and I keep connecting everything you're saying to like the microbrew and beer industry. And that's kind of what I was wondering is like, are there potency labels where you can get beers from 4.2% ABC to, or ABV to whatever, 13.5. And the lab is in charge of helping consumers know just how potent the marijuana they'd be purchasing is. Absolutely. Gotcha. You know, potency, cannabinoid profile, terpene profile, um, as well and as like it, you mentioned before, the consumer safety aspects with, you so know, the content and things. So if you ran your own lab, it, it reminds me of like the cigarette companies back in the day doing their own cancer studies and like choosing what information to put out. So you'd very easily be able to manipulate, make something appear stronger than it might not may, might actually be or overlook particular contaminants that are contained and you could deem them safe where someone who's not trying to make a profit off of a crop would deem them what they are like those sorts of conflicts of interest? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I'm not saying that that's happening in the state yeah, yeah. of Delaware, but, but we have definitely seen evidence in other states. There's definitely been, you know, plenty of media showing that, you know, the lab testing in other states has been inconsistent um, yeah, well, in terms of the product, so... And it's the, it's the people's gripe with pharmaceutical companies, man. It's like, okay, you're telling me this is non-addictive, but you're the ones who ran the study to figure out it's non-addictive so that you could then sell us this product and profit billions. Why are we trusting you with the potential to earn billions 
your data's clean. Like what, right. like it, it should, that's the whole point of like checks and balances. Right. And going back to like, just, I guess some foundational, I think beliefs of our country, like capitalism wise, I'm super surprised that the market's so limited. Do you know why they decided or it was decided to have limited licenses? Well, um, the initial implementation, I don't think that that was the initial goal or vision of what um, of how the Medical Marijuana Act was written and passed. Um, you know, there was limited licenses for the initial implementation. Um, it was the regulators, you know, DHSS and the medical marijuana program that has effectively limited um, that market here in the state of Delaware. Because like I said, there was language in the bill that, you know, we could have as many dispensaries as, you know, would suit the state of Delaware and, you know, address the needs for the patients. But um, the regulators just absolutely refuse to license any more dispensaries. I also just wanted to mention too, because, you know, what, what you were just saying about like the conflict of interest with the, with, um, the laboratories, we've directly asked, uh, the program director, Paul Highland, um, if the farm still currently owns, um, that compliance facility. And we have not gotten a straight answer about who owns it. And we were told that we weren't privy to that information. And after we put in the Freedom of Information Act back in 2014 for the initial licenses, um, they actually wrote regulations into the um, uh, RFPs after that, that that information was not FOIA available. So then yeah. the public can't check on who owns the lab that's assuring the quality of the me medical marijuana that's being consumed. Well, we have not been successful in getting that answer. What I do know is not FOIA available is who owns the dispensary. So I'm not sure because uh, the, compl the compliance facility, I think, was licensed prior to the other RFPs. I'm not exactly sure where that was in, I forget off the top of my head, but um, like I said, we've directly asked and we have been stonewalled for that information. And to circle back to Paul Highland, not to crap on somebody, I don't like advocating for people to be fired or whatever, um, but is that an appoint, do you know, is that an appointed position by the governor or how does he get his position? Honestly, you know, I do not know that. Um, I do know that the commissioner for the new adult use industry is uh, appointed by the governor as well as the appeals committee for um, the new adult use industry. Um, I'm not sure if DHSS hires uh, the director for the program or if it was a uh, governor appointed way back in 2011, but it, it's consistently been the same director the entire um, length of that program. And do you know why he's so anti-expansion of licenses? Like, have you ever actually had a true conversation with him where he's given you whatever 30 minutes an hour to really like explain this? Oh my gosh, yes. We have talked to him at length ad nauseum over the last 10 years, um, you know, trying to get these other dispensaries open. And, you know, the answer has always been so surprising 
um, you know, that they'd be this forthright about it. But he's been very honest um, and upfront that uh, it's about protecting the financial interests of the current dispensaries. Mm. And does that go to Delaware just being so pro-business with all the incorporation licenses here? Or why wouldn't they want – or do you chalk that up to like lobbyists? And I guess that's where I'm That's where I'm getting confused as I'm thinking about this. So if he's a state employee and if he's not up for election, how do lobbyists affect him? That's where I keep getting confused with the lobbyist. But if he's appointed, you'd have to go to the person appointing him. And then you'd assume that would be beneficial to Mr. Highland. Yeah. um, I mean, well, I mean, there's a... Or am I getting like way too conspiracy and like, like, um, what's like, uh, um, theoretical? (laughs) Like, I I don't want to just like think out loud, but that kind of confuses me where if like they're, if a company is lobbying, how do they have such influence over uh, a director? Yeah. Well, like I said, so the conversations that we've had with the director, Paul Highland, um, you know, he's been very forthright about protecting the business interests for these medical cannabis dispensaries and has said that coming from the angle from what he's saying um, is that, you know, these medical dispensaries have done a service for the state of Delaware and, you know, they've provided medical cannabis for the patients, like basically making what they've done a valiant effort. Um, But it doesn't dissect the fact that they're charging some of the highest prices in the state of Delaware. And you're talking about lobbyists. Well, the very first dispensary owner is a lobbyist. Um, Mark Lally, um, and, you know, he's very well connected, um, in terms of, um, you know, he used to work for Senator Carper, um, he was former law enforcement and, uh, he's been a lobbyist for a long time and he, you know, it's no, no surprise that it was former law enforcement and a lobbyist that was able to secure the very first and only dispensary uh, for medical cannabis um, back in 2014 and was the only dispensary for a few years before those other dispensaries were open. Um, In terms of the influence, I'm not exactly sure, but um, my conversation that I had with Mark Lally um, in between when HB1 and HB2 passed the Senate and when the governor decided not to veto the bill, um, we encountered uh, the medical dispensaries and the owners um, down at Legislative Hall when we were um, uh, participating in one of the committee hearings that day. And that was very similar uh, to what um, Paul Highland had said to me because Mark Lally said basically that he deserved these, um, you know, special competitive advantages and first mover privileges because he took the risk when nobody else took the risk uh, to open these dispensaries. And I said to him, well, there was a number of other businesses that were qualified that were rejected that could have also taken that risk. And, um, you know, part of what he was saying to me was he took a risk when 
um, what he thought he could have been arrested by the federal government. And I reminded him that his business opened um, in 2014 or 20, I think it was 2015. And that was actually two years after the federal government issued a guidance on state legal medical uh, marijuana activity and basically said that they were going to be completely hands off with in regards to states that have, um, you know, moved forward with medical cannabis and they wouldn't even be investigating, um, you know, any of the state legal activity as long as it didn't involve one of the eight areas of concern, which were things like um, growing on federal land, crossing state um, lines, you know, marketing to minors, things like that. Mm. Um, So there was no risk when his business was licensed in terms of the federal government. He was obviously much in compliance with state law. Um, and the federal government had already discontinued investigating state legal activity with regards to medical marijuana um, by the time his business was licensed. So there's some like, you know, uh, I think back padding that's, you know, not necessarily genuine. Yeah, that it, it's like plausible deniability. We're like, yeah, I have risk. And it's like, I mean, I guess, but you're not using cartoon characters to make people get medical marijuana cards. So you're not going to be accused of applying or advertising to kids. Well, I said to him, I said, well, if you were so worried about your risk, why didn't you step aside and allow the handful of other qualified um, businesses that received a score that would have made them eligible? Why didn't you step aside and allow one of those dispensaries to open? Did you talk to anybody who was rejected? What do they get told? And if you did, like, what do they get told when they are rejected when they apply? I've never talked to anybody about what happened after they were rejected. But it's interesting because um, on that list, it was actually, I think it was like six to eight other applicants in the very first round of, um, you know, for the RFP for medical marijuana. Um, And former um, state auditor Kathy McGinnis was one of those applicants that did receive a qualifying score, but was inevitably rejected. I never spoke with her about that though. So I don't know, but that's just a little interesting tidbit. How different would her life be? And like maybe the job interests of her daughter and her friends. (laughs) (laughs) They could have been farmers and all that shit would have been avoided. Sorry, I was just um, not to not to besmirch, but I guess to kind of poke fun and besmirch. How like how hard would it be to get a passing score? Are you familiar with that? Like if if someone like me who's completely ignorant to this, um, how difficult would it be for me to apply to be a medical marijuana dispensary? Well, the short answer is first and foremost, there is no application process. Like I said, it is so strictly regulated, you know, as a limited license uh, state and limited license program that there's no possibility for you to even apply. Um, So that's first and foremost. But hypothetically, um, so there's a competitive scoring process that outlines a number of areas. um, And my understanding is it's actually been slightly different, um, you know, throughout the years. The very first RFP was different than the one that um, went out in 2020. Not, I don't think, you know, significantly different, but I think that there were some 
um, you know, differences to those applications. But, um, you know, each area uh, that criteria that the regulators set out would, you know, have some kind of scoring process and each area would be scored, you know, separately and then tallied at the end. And the person with the highest score inevitably um, is awarded the license. So how do people find out how to do it? Like, where's the rubric of like, hey, man, you need 12 acres. Hey, you need this kind of fence. Hey, you need this kind of camera. Hey, you need this, what, like, like must haves. How do people find that out? Um, well, so if you go to, uh, if you can Google medical marijuana program, Delaware, and on the medical marijuana program site, there's, um, you know, the, the regulations and the code, um, and, a lot of that's contained within that. So in terms of like what your business would, would have to do to comply with the program in order to get licensed, um, a lot of that is in the code. But then um, there's also some additional, um, you know, uh, standards and qualifications that they put out in the RFP uh, that determine some of those things as well. Um, for the adult use market, um, you know, a lot of that is going to be you know, written into the regulation. So that process hasn't even begun yet. Um, it's actually a pretty lengthy process here in the state of Delaware for adult use, um, you know, involving everything from Senate confirmations of the governor's appointees, you know, to then obviously establishing that office before they can even, um, you know, create the rules and regulations that would determine how people can apply. Um, so that's probably going to happen sometime between the fall um, and we're hoping the end of the year in terms of, um, you know, the regulations and like which will be the roadmap for any, uh, you know, interested entrepreneur to get into the adult use industry. Yeah. Um, and that might be just like a good natural transition. Um, unless is there anything else you want to cover about medical marijuana or bring up or say? I mean, I would just mention, you know, because I think there's a lot of people that really want, um, you know, dispensaries to be opened here in the state of Delaware. Um, and the unfortunately, the only route um, for that within, um, you know, any time before 2024, um, you know, would only be through the medical cannabis dispensaries and, you know, allowing those dispensaries to open would just completely deplete the medical cannabis supply. Um, it would harm the new adult use industry. It would outcompete any new businesses trying to get into that industry. Um, and it would have significant implications for the success of the entire industry in the state of Delaware. For the adult use market? Yes. Well, for both. Because, I mean, it's just basic supply and demand. So we have approximately 20,000 medical cannabis patients here in the state of Delaware. Um, according to the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration, there's um, approximately 150,000 to 190,000 adult use consumers. Um, so obviously, you know, allowing a significant influx of um, consumers to patronize those businesses would put a severe strain on the medical cannabis uh, supply for patients who rely on this medicine um, 
oftentimes as an alternative to harmful and addictive pharmaceuticals. So then if you introduce, you know, you go from 20,000 patients that the medical dispense, these five operational medical dispensaries um, serve right now to 190,000 adult use consumers plus out-of-state consumers as well, um, you know, not only would it deplete the supply, but it would um, increase the demand, which then would increase the price the cost, yeah. um, for, for medical cannabis um, and adult use cannabis. So even if the medical dispensaries were allowed to sell adult use um, to adult use consumers, adult use consumers don't want to buy ounces that cost 300 to $400 an ounce. I mean, people are just going to continue to do what they're doing before. So we're just asking everyone to, you know, just please be patient. Um, you know, we don't want these medical cannabis dispensaries to have these first mover privileges where they're able to uh, open up and start sales before any other new Delaware um, business is able to even compete in this industry. Um, so I know that's been a big thing that we've been, you know, hearing, you know, people want to know when they can buy uh, legal cannabis and why they can't go to the medical dispensaries. So I just think it's important to note, you know, what that would do if they were able to open up. That makes sense. Would the, would medical, would people with a medical cannabis use card still even need it if you could just go to a, any adult consumer store? Because if it's not covered by insurance, the only protection the card gets you is if like your employer says you're going to piss hot and that's a big deal, right? I mean, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why a patient would still, um, you know, get a medical cannabis card. And like you said, first and foremost, the employment protections that aren't offered to adult use consumers. So, um, you know, the medical cannabis uh, law, the way that it was written, um, extends a number of protections for medical cannabis patients. Um, and that being first and foremost, um, second off, uh, you know, uh, possession limits. So an adult uh, use consumer can only have one ounce, a medical cannabis patient, uh, is legally allowed to possess up to six ounces. Um, so, you know, you have that plus, I think like there's a lot of stigma involved with, you know, adult use consuming versus medical consumption. And I think that there's a lot of, um, older patients that feel more comfortable, um, you know, seeing themselves or, you know, being a medical cannabis patient rather than, um, you know, calling themselves an adult use consumer. I just want to mention when we call it adult use, um, you know, that encompasses, you know, medical cannabis, uh, therapeutic cannabis, recreational cannabis, um, consuming cannabis socially, um, spiritually, preventatively. It goes well beyond recreational. So we, we like to use the word um, adult use gotcha. um, versus, you know, recreational because recreational is kind of just very limited. But so you could be. Um, a medical patient and still just be an adult use consumer. Um, and I think that there's a lot of patients that might not sign up for their card again based on the way that they've been treated for the last yeah. uh, 10 years. I think that's, you know, a big part of um, why there might be some patients that decide that they don't sign back up for the, for the program. You know, they've been, you know, yeah, facing dude. all these issues. They've been, um, you know, price gouged. 
uh, since the beginning of the the well, market and it's just it's really bad and you know these dispensaries could be lobbying to improve the program um there's a number of things that they could be using their um you know high-priced lobbyists and all their influence and everything um you know they could be advocating to remove qualifying conditions um to allow uh insurance to cover medical cannabis um they could What's that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's that's what I don't get. It's like you need some sort of scale, like like in algebra. So how many? And this is going to be like so simple and stupid. How many joints equals a Percocet, right? Like like you need some sort of like like uh, um, translation in order to be like, oh well, I know if I get a prescription, I pay ten dollars with like Blue Cross Blue Shield. And I'm done with it, right? Like if I need pain meds, if I have ACL surgery and I get whatever, 10 bucks. So like what's the conversion chart if I want to opt for pain relief through medical marijuana versus pharmaceutical? Like why is that so difficult to then I paid my buck 25 for my medical marijuana card and now you're still getting me full price? Like I don't have to do that with pharmaceuticals. So when you bring up that point, that's a thing that, I don't even like it angers me. Like, shouldn't that just be covered if I want to go with a more holistic and pure drug to help me? Oh yeah, I know it's, it's really maddening. I mean, and part of that is because of, um, the federal law, obviously, um, like I said earlier, cannabis is still classified as a schedule one with drugs like heroin. Um, so that's being, been a big part of that issue and why um, it's not been treated like uh, a medicine, like many other, um, you know, things like pharmaceuticals and everything. Because um, in, insurances and like Medicare, Medicaid, I, I thought Medicare and Medicaid were like Delaware based. I understand they're federal, but I thought Delaware flipped the bill for those. Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but I do think, I know they pay in, you know, to a degree. Uh, I'm not yeah. exactly Don't, sure. If not it's sure if it's yeah. Just because what you were saying earlier about um, the federal government saying, if you met, as long as you don't overstep these boundaries, we're going to leave you be. I would assume, I would have assumed that would have covered also or opened the door for medical marijuana to be covered by insurances as long as they meet the other requirements, like you said, marketing to children, not crossing state lines kind of a thing. Yeah. To my knowledge, um, as of right now, there are no states that allow insurance coverage for medical cannabis. Um, There's been a number of efforts to try to do that. I think there's active legislation possibly in New Jersey, definitely in New York, but there's also been um, some recent court decisions. There was a court decision actually out of Pennsylvania um, where court uh, required that workmen's comp pay for uh, the patient's medical cannabis bill. Um, so things like that uh, help establish those precedent to help push for, um, you know, that legislation. Uh, but it, it's going to be a standalone piece of legislation, and there really hasn't been much appetite to take that up yet. Yeah, that I, that, I guess that's kind of separate from our, like, Delaware-focused conversation but that is something that's boggled my mind that when you're talking about these prices and then i start thinking of consumption and i equate it to like consuming pills whatever one every 24 hours you get a 30-day prescription 
And you're like, well, how much longer could an ounce last somebody, right? How much longer could six ounces, as you had said, um, I guess is the limit with a medical card, last somebody. And I, I don't like what the beneficial effects and the non-addictive effects compared to specifically in my mind, just because of the Dope Sick book I've read and um, hearing about it, like the non-addictive properties for pain relief just seems so much beneficial, so much more beneficial. And then why would it be so much more money and not covered? It just seems like such a common sense thing to be like, you know, we should cover it. We should figure out a conversion chart and cover it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some nuance to some of that as well, because you just don't have the same type of, um, you know, you wouldn't be able to make that conversion like every single strain is different. Yeah. Every single crop can be different, hence the need for testing and potency labeling and things like that. Um, so like, I don't think that there's clear answers for that. Then the other part of it is, is that, you know, you've had pharmaceutical companies um, actually lobbying against federal legalization, um, you know, and like you were just saying, like, obviously uh, there's a benefit for, patients to get off of harmful addictive pharmaceuticals and you know try the alternative um which which is all natural um non-toxic and there's no physical dependency from consuming there's no possibility of overdosing Overdosing. yeah Um, (laughs) so then you can have somebody who um you know takes you know, this pain management therapy for a long period of time um, increases their tolerance, but doesn't subject themselves to the possibility of a lethal overdose by increasing their dose. Um, So, and what the research has shown is that, you know, it's an exit drug. You know, we've heard, you know, especially growing up in the 90s, you know, gateway, Gateway you know, the gateway, but it's actually, you know, an exit drug. I mean, just anecdotally, we hear that so often. It's probably one of the most prevalent stories that we hear doing our outreaches. People come up to us and they're like, they have gotten off of every single pharmaceutical that they were on. And a lot of people even got off drugs, you know, using cannabis therapy and how cannabis saved their life. You know, they've just literally gotten off of a cocktail of harmful medications because of this. And that's what the research shows too. Um, you know, it's reducing opiate use, abuse, and overdose in states that have legalized and have, you know, functioning markets. I, yeah. Um, so if you sell medical or um, adult use marijuana in Delaware, it has to be grown in Delaware or can companies purchase it from states where it's legal but then you would be like crossing a state line, right? So I'm curious about that. So people, if you're applying for a license, there are like pot, pot farms spread out through Delaware that I don't know about that all the kids will be looking for. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> interestingly enough, exactly like, um, you know, because of the federal government, yes, everything has to be done completely uh, in the state of Delaware. And I think you just, you know, touched on an interesting point. You know, um, we obviously have six medical cannabis dispensaries or, well, five operational medical cannabis dispensaries. And, you know, it's called, you know, the immaculate conception theory, because where did they get their genetics from? You know, <laughs> you know, it didn't come from, like you said, these imaginary pot farms throughout the state of Delaware. Dear, 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 <laughs> dear just dropped. 
<laughs> I was just thinking of like different animals that like happen to eat some pot, come over and they poop in a field. And then there's these scientists that go out there and find it. And they're like, thank goodness we came across this. <laughs> like now we can grow pot in Delaware. <laughs> That's hysterical. Somebody should make that into a political cartoon. That would be great. <laughs> right? Some like fisherman on the coast happens to like grab a whatever, a carp or bass. And it's just like, oh, it swallowed someone's roach or something. And then like, it's like, now we have a chance. Thank God they bought that dirt weed with seeds in it. We can make this happen. That's, I never thought about that. That's so funny because if, yeah, how do you grow if you're not allowed to previously have the seed and you can't transport it? Sorry, I just, I think of stupid stories like that. And I'm like, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that is funny. <laughs> like, we found it. <laughs> no doubt. So, yeah, that I guess goes to the um, adult use market. If you go from 20,000 medical cannabis users to almost 200,000, that's 10 times. Like, how do you grow that much more in Delaware to like, get everyone what they want so the adult use uh market um the initial implementation um is actually 60 cultivation licenses um with the need to assess more after two years so um you know there are initial uh caps for the implementation but uh after two years um there are no caps there can be as many dispensaries and cultivation facilities um, as the regulators will license. Um, so that's one of the things that dispensaries actually fought against as well. And you can actually read, um, there was an op-ed that was published in um, the Delaware State News just recently by the farm that, you know, insinuates that the adult use market has too many licenses um, for cultivation and kind of points to the red herring um, that we're hearing from a lot of opponents about states like Oregon and Colorado that have the most competitive markets on this, you know, in the entire country, um, which have the lowest prices in the country. They're out competing the illicit market. They're serving the patient's needs. There's, you know, multiple tiers of quality product um, and basically doing everything, you know, they they can to do it right and allow for you know a free market as much as possible under you know the federal um under the federal law obviously you know there's some issues with that but um yeah so it's going to go from six uh cultivators well like i said there's only five operational ones so there's five operational medical cultivators now and delaware will have 60 additional cultivators under the new adult use law after that gets implemented. That's something I hadn't thought about. And you had said Oregon and Colorado are some of the best open market examples where people are able to consume for some of the cheapest prices. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. So, it is ridiculous. And like I said, just a simple Google search shows that, you know, Columbia care operates here in the state of Delaware. They also operate in Colorado. So here in the state of Delaware, they sell medical cannabis for, 300 to 400 dollars an ounce the same exact product labeled in the same exact package everything is sold in their dispensaries in colorado from anywhere between 75 and 150 dollars an ounce Whoa. um and yeah and to further put that in perspective also they sell um medical cannabis uh dispensaries here in the state of delaware sell rso 
um, which is one of the most medicinal products. It's one of the best things for medical cannabis patients is the RSO, especially, you know, for patients that have things like epilepsy and cancer and things like that. They're selling one gram of RSO here in the state of Delaware for $100. That same product is sold in Colorado, Oregon, and even non-competitive markets like California, um, you know, for significant a fraction of that price in Colorado and Oregon, it's typically 20 to $25. And in less competitive markets in Colorado, it's not even, I mean, California, it's not even that much more expensive, anywhere between 20 and $35 uh, for a gram. So, I mean, so, it's just unbelievable what's happening here in the state of Delaware. And it's really, really sad. It is part of the argument on their part. Cause I think of Colorado and I think of land. And I think of Delaware and I think of no land anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, is part of it the fact that if you have to grow it within the state, the boundaries constrict the amount you can grow, therefore you have to charge a higher price? Is that a no. legitimate argument or? Absolutely not. No, no, no way. Um, because most, most cannabis across the country uh, in the United States is grown indoor. Um, you know, so you have all these different like indoor cultivation facilities that could be set up literally anywhere. And Delaware has a host of, um, you know, defunct chicken houses and um, warehouses and all types of existing buildings throughout the state that could could very easily be converted into indoor cultivation facilities. Um, so absolutely not. Um, you know, part of the issue with the medical cannabis was um, not only was the, uh, the medical cannabis program um, arbitrary limiting the license here in the state of Delaware, but they were also um, arbitrarily capping uh, the cultivation, um, the size of the cultivation facilities um, for the licensed dispensaries here in the state of Delaware. Um, and that's another issue. And I think this is a really good tie-in and important to bring up. So my understanding is that most of the medical cannabis dispensaries operate anywhere between, um, I think, 20,000 and 30,000 square feet of cultivation uh, grows. And um, the largest uh, for the adult use market um, to begin with will be uh, 12,000. 1500. So that'll that just shows you right there. If they're allowed to start before any other business is licensed here in the state of Delaware, their gigantic grows will significantly outcompete these new small businesses that have been intentionally um, you know, written into the legalization law that passed. I don't know if like I I just think of like ratios and proportions and like 1 over 2 equals 2 over 4 kind of a thing. So if you look at, you've got 20,000 medical cannabis supply consumers and you're allowed 20,000 square feet, right? Just to go on the low end of your 20 to 30,000 square feet of cultivation grows. We're going to increase the consumer base to 190,000, but we're almost going to cut in half what your, the square footage of your growth. How does that feed the market? Like it, 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 that to me just mathematically makes no sense. If you've, if you've established basically a one-to-one -one ratio of every person gets a square foot of cultivation growth, shouldn't 
the maximum cultivation growth somehow meet your potential demand for adult consumers? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I don't know if I'm I thinking about that wrong, but like I'm just looking at that number. I'm like, that dude, that that's so small in comparison. Yeah, there's definitely going to be some growing pains um, in terms of the new industry. That's for sure. There was, you know, a lot of concessions made over the years. Obviously, this was our sixth attempt at legalization. So there's been a lot of influences on the language over the years. Gosh, um, wow. But I mean, I think that, you know, obviously five uh, grows that currently exist here in the state of Delaware to, you know, 60 will significantly you know, help meet those needs. But quite frankly, um, you know, just from the jump, I think that there's going to have to be an expansion of that market. Yeah. And like one business, and again, just to go for the simple like beer um, analogy. Um, so like the dogfish of pot, would they be able to apply for 10 of those 60 cultivating licenses? And then, it, then, then they would have 10, 1200 fire, 12,500 foot cultivating options or are you limited to one business one cultivating license you need to be a separate business to get a culti another cultivating license um i believe that the latest version of the bill passed where you can get one of each license um you know that was previous versions um i'm actually i'd have to go back and look for sure but Not i believe sure. that it's one of each license you know with the exception of you can't own um a laboratory license lab. if you own any of the cultivation manufacturing or retail facilities as well as um nobody that works within um the new regulatory office will uh it, it's also a conflict of interest for them to own any of the licenses or have any interest in those so then the 60 cultivating licenses would in theory, be issued to 60 different companies attempting to enter the adult use market. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not call. trying to put you on the spot, man. Dude, and, yeah. by, and by the way, props to you. I don't know if like you just have talking points laid out. You are so fucking articulate and knowledgeable about all of this. I am amazed at your recall from like the past 12 years. So I'm sorry to put you on the spot with those types of like nitty gritty questions. No, no, I appreciate it. Um, I mean, it's lived experience. I mean, we've eat, breathed, and sleep, right. slept this, you know, Clearly. reform for the last 10 years. So, like, um, but yeah, I know it is definitely our hope that it is 60 separate cultivation facilities, um, or at least as many as possible, um, yeah. you know, that are different entities. You know, obviously, competition favors the consumer. Yeah. Um, and that's what and I was thinking. Is yeah. it, it, it seems like it would suck if the Columbia Care, for example, were able to purchase 59 of the 60 cultivating licenses. And then they're just like, yep, we'll keep with our monopoly on this. And that's kind of what I was wondering about. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and double check that because I just I, I hate saying things that I don't know for sure. Gotcha. Um, but I do know that a previous version did limit it to one of each license. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a difference between you and I. I enjoy reckless speculation, um, and you're way more calculated, which is probably why you're way more successful at passing legislation than I am. <laughs> um, let's let's transition there, man. Take me to the start of P 
pivoting from medical use to just adult use. Um, I'm so just so curious on how easy now you've made connections through the medical stuff or completely new battles. How did it go trying to get this uh, adult use legalization going? Yeah, well, I mean, it pretty much started simultaneously. So when we began um, Delaware Normal back in 2013, um, it was just one of those things that was like, um, we need to obviously advocate for adult use. um, But we have this lingering issue with medical cannabis that we obviously need to address. And we need to make sure that patients have safe access and that this law is fully implemented. So it kind of began simultaneously. And on the adult use side, um, you know, when we began organizing and um, basically starting the citizen-led lobbying campaign that we organized, um, we realized quickly that we weren't, um, you know, facing the same issues as other states. Other states that had already legalized had done... done so through voter initiative and voter referendum, but Delaware doesn't have voter referendum. Um, So the only way to pass cannabis legalization in the state of Delaware was to do so through uh, the legislature. Um, So we organized, um, basically created and organized a dedicated, committed um, citizen lobbying campaign. We, you know, held all types of events. We actually 550 events across the first state, um, you know, to promote cannabis legalization and policy reform. And, um, you know, basically taught people how to citizen lobby. Um, we held, um, I, I think it was like almost 50 Delaware citizens cannabis lobby days throughout the year, the years. Um, and we actually used to hold them monthly prior to COVID. Um, so just, you know, trying to organize everybody, um, try to teach people the process of citizen lobbying and um, put as much pressure on, you know, our public officials as we possibly could. Um, so it's been a long journey. Like I said earlier, it's involved um, thousands of Delawareans across the state. Um, and luckily, you know, with the small state, we were able to, you know, create a grassroots campaign and mobilize um, throughout the state, um, you know, to create this dedicated campaign. Um, and we we also... Um, formed a coalition back in 2016 um, that's grown into more than two dozen organizations throughout the state um, that help support our efforts to legalize cannabis. Um, And that included with the first step of um, decriminalization back in 2015. So it's been a long, long process here in the state of Delaware. Um, Like I said, we've had um, six attempts at cannabis legalization and the, the first version uh, of that bill failed by um, only a few votes. Um, that was the other issue with adult use cannabis legalization in the state of Delaware is that because uh, it creates a, a new market or converts an existing market, rather, um, <laughs> it establishes licensing fees and taxes 
um, in terms of, you know, creating that market. So the Delaware State Constitution actually requires a three-fifths supermajority vote uh, hurdle to pass anything that has taxes or licensing fees in. Um, so that was a huge, huge obstacle and hurdle for us in the state of Delaware. Most bills only need a simple majority. Um, so to kind of put it in perspective, it, it was um, similar to like the filibuster on a national level where the vote threshold was actually increased um, and we needed more votes um, than a regular bill does. So the very first yeah. version of the bill garner, garnered a simple majority. Delaware was actually the first state in the entire country to garner a simple majority on a cannabis legalization bill through the legislature. The only states that had legalized prior to that had done so through um, voter referendum. Um, so unfortunately, because of that state constitutional requirement for the increased vote count, um, we ended up failing by four votes, even though we got a simple majority on that first bill. And then, I mean, it was such an a incredible process after that. We lost our prime sponsors. Um, they both retired after that bill failed in 2018. Um, we got two new prime sponsors, Representative Ed Ozinski and Senator Trey Party, um, and um, a number of bills through through that process. We had dozens of committee hearings um, and hundreds of people throughout the state of Delaware, just regular Delaware citizens, you know, um, you know, speak up and uh, attend those committee hearings and help us advocate for legalization. So, um, and then of course, last year with the veto, we finally passed a cannabis legalization bill <laughs> through the General Assembly, only to have the governor veto it. Um, and uh, Delaware actually took up the first veto override vote. Um, it was actually a year ago yesterday. Um, and unfortunately there was a lot of pressure. Um, I'm sorry, I, th I, I think I didn't mention, but it was actually the first veto override since 1990. No um, way. yeah, so we had a lot of historical pressure, <laughs> as well as pressure from the governor and, um, you know, a number of lawmakers who had previously voted for that bill um, caved to that pressure, uh, along with some of our co-sponsors that changed their vote. Um, and we ended up losing that historic override vote by five votes, which also required a three-fifths supermajority. Um, so it was <laughs> a long uh, several months. And then luckily, you know, we had persistent co-sponsors that even though you know, we still have the same governor and all the same hurdles and obstacles. Um, they were persistent and moved forward with legislation, and we were able to pass that this year. So there's a lot more work to be done. Um, you know, there's a number of things that we didn't get in this legislation that we're going to continue to advocate for. We have, you know, the long-term goal of removing all civil and criminal penalties uh, for cannabis um, completely. And, you know, what we're seeing right now actually is kind of like a reversal in that we, we just passed cannabis legalization, um, you know, with repeal day being April 23rd. And then just in May, we've seen a bill that, um, includes, um, making, uh, cannabis possession tier three cannabis possession, um, uh, a violent felony 
here in the state of Delaware. Um, so, yeah, so now we're kind of, you know, playing defa- defense on some of the legislation as well. Um, but it's been a long process, an incredibly long journey that was 10 years in the making that involved thousands of Delawareans across the state, um, as well as dozens of organizations that helped us, you know, achieve this long-awaited victory. Let's go back to citizen lobbying. And what's like the strategy? What's the goal? What's the key? Is it just butts in seats at committee hearings? Is it newspaper clippings like the Cape Gazette article that I'd completely forgotten about what the point was, but I remember the pictures? Um, Like, how do you, how do you lobby? How do you, how do you gather citizens to, um, I don't know, to, is protest too strong of a word? (laughs) To advocate for what they want. Yeah, well, um, you know, it was basically developing a single issue grassroots campaign um, and, you know, mobilizing across the state, beginning with like things like list building. Obviously, that was um, a crucial first tool is, you know, establish people that support our cause, um, try to find um, other interested individuals, recruit volunteers. And this was a completely all volunteer Um, effort here in the state of Delaware. So not one person in the state of Delaware got paid for these efforts. Um, And it it was definitely challenging sustaining that over the last 10 years. Um, You know, and part of it was, you know, an incredible amount of volunteer trainings as well, because um, like a lot of people don't know the process um, for policy change here in the state of Delaware. A lot of people don't even realize that we don't have voter initiative like many other states. Um, you know, right. we would set up booths um, at events across the state um, and people would come to our booth. We'd have some of the most, you know, popular booths in like whatever event that we were at with just people just lined up to talk about it. But people would come into the booth and say, where do I sign? And <laughs> they just want to sign a petition. Um, so we're like, wait, I know everybody just wants to sign a petition, but then we had to explain the process here in the state of Delaware, you know, involving the civics of, you know, changing laws and things like that. And then, of course, convince ordinary citizens that have, you know, entire lives and families and children and, you know, full-time jobs to take time out of their lives to do all these other things that we have to do in order to pass this law. Um, And we, you know, including our citizen lobby days. Um, So in addition to um, all the committee hearings that we would get, you know, we would organize people from across the state and organizations to participate, give public comment, things like that. In addition to all that, we would have regular Delaware Citizens Cannabis Lobby Days is what we would call them. Um, and it would start with citizen lobbying training in the morning where we would go over effective tactics and techniques. Um, we often had um, a veteran lobbyist, um, uh, John Flaherty, with um, Coalition for Open Government come in and you know give his perspective as a 25-year, 30-year lobbyist and, you know, effective strategies that he's used. We would go over talking points, um, you know, rebuttals, and just every possible thing and equip people with as much information, as much research, um, and as much as we could um, to try to help educate and prepare them for meetings with their lawmakers. And then on top of that, of course, um, you know, uh, 
mobilizing throughout the state, getting people to contact their lawmakers, um, taking action uh, and things like that. And then, of course, we hosted, um, like I said, 550 events throughout the state, including things like um, town halls, serious public forums, um, outreach events, um, and information sessions and things like that, you know, to build our base um, and our list of supporters. We actually have um, over 10,000 uh, subscribed uh, email subscribers. Dang. Like 10,000, 10, that's a pretty big deal because Delaware has 1 million people in it. <laughs> and then when you think of the amount of people that vote, that's like, that's a substantial amount. That That's some sway. Yeah, I mean, and on top of that, we also had, you know, um, anywhere from, you know, 61 to most recently, uh, over 70% uh, public support across yeah. the political spectrum. So in addition to people that were like, absolutely, we support this cause and we'll sign up for it, we'll volunteer and things like that. We had a host of people throughout the state that just supported our efforts um, both, yeah. you know, in the public and behind the scenes. Is that no? And I'm curious about the tactics and techniques because like I called, I, I feel like I called governor Carney during the veto point when it was like, is he going to veto? Is he not the first time? And I was like, Hey, please tell governor Carney not to veto. And, um, I was like, does my call even get to that guy? Does my call even matter to that guy? But then when I feel like politicians hear a poll where it says 61 to 70% are for something, that to me would be more persuasive than whatever, 10 calls from 10 different people. But I'm yeah. not sure. So I'm curious about like techniques and tactics, power of emails, power of calls, power of social media posts where you tag people, power of just actually clicking on polls. You know, like, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, to, uh, to quote a mentor of mine from Philadelphia, uh, Vanessa Maria, direct action gets the goods. Um, so, you know, just being relentless. I think to answer your question um, in terms of does your call make it to that guy, does it count? I think, you know, it's quite the opposite of how you stated it, where um, even at the end, and I think that this was, demonstrated through, you know, what Governor Carney said at the end of this, right before he decided he wasn't going to take action. Um, we actually attended um, his um, town hall meetings and whatnot. And one of the things that he had said was he doesn't care about polling, you know, because we brought it up during that town hall, you know, how many people support and increasing support, you know, across the political spectrum. And he was just like, he doesn't care, you know, about how much support, you know, polls aren't going to be what changes him. But what inevitably changed his mind in terms of deciding not to veto it was the public pressure. So it was people like you um, and all the other people that took direct action, that made the call, that picked up the phone and, you know, let their voices be heard. That's the only way that anything is going to happen in the state of Delaware, other than the lobbyists and the special interest groups that, you know, have a stronghold on our legislature. That's how the majority of laws that get passed here in yeah. the state of Delaware, you know? So I, I definitely say, we always say, 
you know, one call in a district is like, you know, representative of like 10 constituents. And I think that they feel that, you know, having that persistent public pressure, uh, you know, I think was inevitably what, you know, helped this campaign succeed Mm -hmm. uh, against all the obstacles that we've seen, you know, considering that the governor wasn't supportive. You know, he even said he was tired of talking about it. And he acknowledged during that town hall that, um, you know, we had been at all his other town halls in 2017. We'd organized to make sure that people were, were at every single one of his town halls and brought up this question. And sometimes we didn't even have to organize it. It was other people that we didn't even know that would bring it up before we even got a chance. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, he he wanted to move on and he knew he wasn't going to do that if he vetoed it. And it would be a very sticky situation for him. And there was a lot of public pressure that demonstrated that. That's interesting, which I guess goes to the point of helping people to understand rebuttals. But when I called, I, I like I didn't ask to speak to him, but I I just left a message basically with whoever the phone worker was. So I'm curious about rebuttals. Like in in your in your experience, someone like me, whatever, not not podcast me. I don't even know if that has a super ton of influence, but just me as voter Sean. How likely am I to get my rep on the phone and then actually get five to 10 minutes of a conversation where they'll make a point and I'll have to counter it? Well, you know, I believe it or not, um, very, very easily. Um, Delaware lawmakers are very accessible here in the state of Delaware. A lot of them have constituent coffees and meetups where you could, you know, attend one of those and have, you know, direct interaction with your lawmaker. Um, you know, Delaware has, Delaware's a small state, so we have a small legislature um, and probably one of the most accessible legislatures in the entire country. I mean, I, I've, I don't have that much experience. I do, I am familiar with um, Harrisburg in Pennsylvania and it's much, much bigger. You certainly don't have the same accessibility, um, but simply reaching out to your lawmaker, asking for a meeting as a constituent, um, you know, can certainly go a long way. Now, we saw some pushback from, you know, some uh, of the legislature that was opposed to legalization, especially in Sussex County, um, you know, who kind of treated their constituents rather poorly through this because their doors are wide open to the lobbyists. But constituents that wanted to talk to, to their elected officials um, were often shut out of those uh, you know, offices, um, you know, or given very limited access, um, to lawmakers that didn't want to talk about cannabis legalization. But generally, um, you know, that was one of the things that we did through our citizen lobbying campaign was, you know, teach people how to contact their lawmakers, um, how to set up an appointment. And that's what we encouraged at each of our Delaware citizens cannabis lobby days is not that you just show up to our lobby day, but that you specifically make a meeting with your lawmaker and we'll give you everything we possibly can to help you during that meeting. Um, but you know, for the constituents themselves to have those meetings with their lawmakers. So when you say it was difficult for constituents, not as difficult for lobbyists, is that like a FOIA thing where you're, um, like you have their daily agenda or calendar 
or is that just like qualitative kind of stuff? People were telling you like, I only got five minutes, but you know, for a fact, the lobbyist got 35 minutes. How do you, how do you kind of um, parcel that down to know that lobbyists were a little, had more access? Just the observation. I mean, first and foremost, we organized, like I said, uh, over 50 Delaware Citizens Cannabis Lobby Days and, you know, walking constituents through that process um, and standing them with them in these offices while they're waiting, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe even an hour to talk to a lawmaker that said maybe that they would give them some time if they had a chance. But then only to get to that office to find out that they're already meeting with special interest group, you know, X, Y, and Z, and they've been in that office, but now they don't have time for you because they have to get onto the floor for session. Um, So, I mean, completely observational, um, you know, in addition to our 50 organized citizen lobby days, um, me and a few other people, um, had regular presence, still have regular presence at Legislative Hall um, and just, you know, observing, you know, the accessibility that a lot of these special interest groups or high profile lobbyists have um, to lawmakers and regulators um, that, you know, isn't quite as easy or accessible for us or for the constituents. Gotcha. Um, I, I'm super curious about the regular um, presence at Legislative Hall, but then my numerical mind wants to go in a more linear fashion and circle all the way back to first time passing through the legislation and then not getting the super majority um, and then going through that journey. Do you, Maybe I'll rely on your expertise. Do you have, where should I go, right or left, talking about your regular presence at Legislative Hall and the things you observe or the journey of getting a bill from 2000, what it, six attempts? So going through the six attempts or regular presence at Legislative Hall? <laughs> or should I not give up power of my own podcast and I should make a choice and quit being a little bitch? <laughs> I, I'm going to leave it up to your discretion (laughs) (laughs) very kind of you all right yeah so then in that wordy way let me go back through the attempts and it was like the most crushing one when you finally got it i'm assuming that's the fifth one where it finally passes house and senate and then gets vetoed was that the most crushing one or was there other details on the build-up throughout yeah, this is a great question. Um, yeah, I'd have to say definitely last year with the failure of the override veto was absolutely the most crushing um, in terms of uh, the journey. I mean, I <laughs> quite honestly, I was rather depressed after that whole thing happened. And um, I had significantly lost trust in government and reform process and was feeling pretty cynical about the whole process, quite frankly. Um, so yeah, definitely the, the veto, the lack of the veto override was definitely the most crushing, but you know, the first vote was, was definitely surprising. I think that we thought that we were much closer, 
uh, back in 2018. And that first bill was introduced in 2017, but it didn't get a vote until 2018 because instead of passing it the first year in 2017, um, there's actually a resolution that passed instead, which established the Adult Use Cannabis Task Force in which we were a part of. Um, and it compiled, you know, stakeholders and state agencies um, to be a part of this process, as well as opponents. Um, and that process was actually derailed by opponents, um, you know, from 2017 into 2018. And uh, there actually had to be another resolution passed to extend um, that process to allow a report to pass out of the Adult Use Cannabis Task Force to compile, you know, the months of work that had been done. Um, so, you know, there's just been so much obstruction, so much, um, you know, pushback and um, a lot of different uh, things, hurdles throughout the years that have, you know, prevented the success. Uh, and, you know, it was six years of active legislation, but that process began, like I said, back in 2013 as well. Yeah. So this was a 10 year process, um, you know, that it began with the very first thing, like I said, with the list building, with the education campaign, with educating lawmakers, establishing the relationships, building the rapport, you know, training all the advocates and everything. That was 10 years um, to reach the victory that we just saw um, on April 23rd. And obviously there's still more work to do, but that was definitely a momentous milestone to say the least. Um, adult use task force. I got, yeah. I got a little lost there um, in, in, in the jargon. Like what, what is, what is that? What that, yeah. Just please explain that to me. <laughs> yeah, so Delaware likes to do these fun things called task forces when they don't want to pass <laughs> legislation. Um, <laughs> and it's basically, you know, and a lot of advocates recognize the process as rather obstructive. Um, and that's certainly what we saw through the Adult Use Cannabis Task Force. But um, like I said, the original very first um, legalization bill for the state of Delaware was introduced in March of 2017. And that bill required a supermajority. Um, we thought we were closer with the whip count um, at the end of 2017, but um, there just wasn't the votes to pass it. So it was actually our prime sponsors that introduced a resolution um, to create the Adult Use Cannabis Task Force in the hopes of um, kind of corralling some of the uh, lawmakers that were on the fence, educating the lawmakers that were opposed to it. And also, um, you know, there was legitimate purpose for the Adult Use Cannabis Task Force as well, because it involved... Um, all the state agencies that would be involved in the implementation and regulatory process. Um, and, you know, was the initial objective um, and the intent of the task force was to take stakeholders, including the state agencies that would be involved in the implementation um, and regulations, as well as advocates like us, consumers. Um, and then, like I said, some of the opponents were included in that task force as well, which is how it kind of went off the rails. Um, but it was a, 
uh, eight month process that involved um, a meeting every single month where um, a topic would be taken up, um, you know, for each specific meeting. Um, you know, there was one on consumer safety. There was a meeting on, um, you know, legality and like um, public safety and things like that. And each meeting had its own focus and state agencies as well as us um, you know, submitted recommendations for how implementation would look um, when the state of Delaware did inevitably legalize cannabis. And there were state agencies that decided that they weren't going to participate in that process in terms of, um, you know, putting together suggestions and things um, that would actually, you know, be beneficial and, you know, I guess, you know, set the state agencies up to be able to implement and instead just obstructed the process. Um, so oh, it, it was, okay. yeah, it was so, convoluted. There was a lot of good information that came out of that task force as well. Um, and that was compiled into that report that I mentioned that had difficulty getting out of that task force because of the obstruction that we saw with the opponents. Okay, and I don't know if this is too simple, but it sounds like the law almost gets hammered out or written, like the details of it go to this task force. And if you don't have all the players at the table, I would assume legislators would not feel comfortable approving something. If not, whatever, Delaware State Police didn't have a part in it if they were asked to. And I'm making that um, Delaware State Police thing up. But yeah. like those roles, if those people aren't there, if their concerns aren't addressed by those organizations within the task force, how do you then ever make a bill to get signed? That's where exactly. I immediately go. Yeah, exactly. And that okay. was the intent of the task force. And law enforcement was included. The Department of Justice was included. Um, you know, uh, all the different regulatory agencies uh, were included. Uh, the Department of Finance, all these agencies were included in that process. And the, the purpose was to say, okay, the bill that everybody's opposing right now, you know, because it was mostly state agencies that opposed that bill, um, the bill that everyone's opposing, what can we do differently that would, you know, hopefully garner their support? But, you know, they came with suggestions, but it didn't come with support. So then, you know, there were a number of changes made through amendments prior to that bill being voted on. Um, at the end of session in 2018 that came directly from the Adult Use Cannabis Task Force report. And it still wasn't enough to, to get the support, the, the super majority support that it needed. Like I said, it did get a simple majority and we were yeah. actually the first state in the entire country to garner a simple majority, but then failed by four votes because it didn't get that super majority. Yeah. So how many more votes do you need for a super majority in Delaware? So, um, well, in the House, uh, a simple majority is 21 votes and a super majority is 25 votes. In the Senate, a uh, simple majority is uh, t uh, 11 votes. Yes, 11 votes. And the super, the three-fifth super majority was 13. Uh, but there's also other supermajorities. So there's actually a two-thirds um, as well as a three-fourths supermajority. And I don't want to get too much into the details, but I'll just say that we've had a bill that required 
all of those super majorities at one point <laughs> and needed to be amend amended to reduce the, the threshold for those vote counts. Yeah, that would make my head spin too, figuring out Although, it, like, why? <laughs> what, 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 what is it within a bill that dictates the threshold for supermajority? Uh, well, the Delaware State Constitution determines that, um, and okay. there's certain things specified within the Constitution. Um, so, for instance, like I already said, anything involving taxes or licensing fees, which obviously establishing the industry would, um, requires a three-fifths supermajority. Now, things like creating criminal penalties requires a two-thirds supermajority. And there was actually a the first version of the bill, unfortunately, contained very unfriendly language um, that we had to get amended out um, that was put there uh, basically to appease some opponents in terms of, um, you know, basically extractions for things like um, like dabs and cannabis oils and how those extractions would occur um, if it were made legal. And they put new criminal penalties in the very first version of the bill back in 2017 and 2018 that would say if you, you know, did these extractions with um, any kind of, um, you know, substance like that included alcohol with an open flame that you'd be charged with a felony. Um, yeah, yeah. So that was the first version of the bill. And luckily, um, through the Adult Use Cannabis Task Force, we provided enough information and research to show why they shouldn't include that in the bill. And that was one of the things that was amended out prior to that bill being voted on before it failed, obviously, um, through the the recommendations that we made through the Adult Use Cannabis Task Force. Um, that's and super, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but like that's super interesting, having to get that deep into the weeds to figure out wording that, I, I don't know, it sounds like people could easily set you up for traps where the legislation would fail based on classifying things certain ways or knowing the Delaware Constitution. If we include this, you need this many votes. Like that's, that's wild to me. I, I guess it's good in a sense, but at the same time, that's wild to me. Well, exactly. Exactly what you just said is exactly what happened. Where, um, so it was somewhere, I think it was the third version of the bill, um, <laughs> third or fourth version of the bill. Sometimes it's hard to keep track. Um, uh, had language that we had advocated for, but it was written in a way that we were, uh, nobody was familiar. Um, nobody realized basically triggered the three fourths supermajority, which is a significant vote hurdle. I mean, it's absolutely impossible. I can't think of one piece of legislation that um, has required that that has passed, um, at least in my last 10 years, but I could, you know, be overlooking some legislation. But it, it was just, I think it's 31 votes for a three, four supermajority. And of course, it was brought to our attention um, through one of the governor's cabinet agencies with the Department of Finance who fought back against that language. And basically before, it was literally the week of the vote that was scheduled in 2021. Um, so it's June 2021. 
literally days before the scheduled vote on that bill. And the Department of Finance said, oh, wait, wait, wait. You, you know, if you run this bill, you're going to need a three-fourths supermajority, which we certainly did not have and especially didn't have in 2021. Um so then that bill had to be amended. And then what happened was with the amendment, um, you know, I, for people that are familiar with legislative hall, June is a very tense month for legislative session. It's their last month. They end on June 30th. So things get really hectic and chaotic in June. There's, there tends to be a lot of, you know, fighting even sometimes among, you know, party within the parties themselves and things like that. Um, so when that language got amended out, um, we actually had uh, co-sponsors withdraw their support from the bill because they thought that it was taking away from the intent of the bill. Um, oh, so then that bill, instead of getting <laughs> voted on, they took it off the agenda um, with the you know, understanding that everybody was going to work together and try to figure out how to overcome this issue. And the next week, they're like, well, we only have a few days less left of session. So we're not dealing with this this year. And then it just got completely tabled into the next year. And then um, that bill was active. And then instead of amending it even further, uh, new versions of the bill were introduced. Um, and that was the bill that bill ended up failing. That was not one of the ones that passed either. Um, <laughs> and then after that failed in March of last year, then um, the prime sponsors went with a solution that we had actually suggested after the first version of the bill failed back in 2018 um, was to separate the legislation because you had two very different aspects. You had the, the part about removing the civil and criminal penalties, kind of like the criminal justice aspect of the bill, you know, ending the arrest, ending the searches, ending, you know, all the different, um, you know, criminal penalties involving the possession and use of cannabis. But then you also had this other side of, you know, establishing the market and regulations and things like that, which that language was what was you know, triggering this three-fifths supermajority. Uh, so by separating the bills, um, you know, the part that removed the civil and criminal penalties was able to pass with a simple majority. And that was the bill that passed last year that through both the House and the Senate that was inevitably vetoed by the governor. We were able to get it through the legislature um, by separating it and, you know, taking each of the components separately. Um, and that bill passed on a simple majority. Um, and then it was a convoluted issue with that because, um, you know, last year when the simple majority bill passed over to the House, um, it also passed the Senate. But then, um, you know, and I don't think a lot of people know this, but what happened was... Um, so the bill passed the Senate and, you know, there's procedures about the bills being communicated to the governor. And in the process, the governor had reached out to lawmakers in the House the day of the other bill vote. Um, so, you know, like I said, we passed the simple majority. We passed the bill that removed the criminal penalties. But the bill that set up the industry and created the market was still in the House. 
um, and it was slated to be voted on. And the governor reached out to the lawmakers and said that he was going to veto the simple legalization bill. Um, and that basically set off a frenzy in the House that day. We ended up, um, we had, you know, a a whip count where we had all the votes and everything. And we went from having the votes to losing votes literally minutes before that bill got voted on. Um, and there was a lot of convoluted issues with that. Like I said, you know, there was one of our co-sponsors was um, basically uh, he was joining the session remote. So he was on zoom and then uh, a few bills before our bill came up, all of a sudden his camera went off. And then because he wasn't uh, voting that day, we ended up failing by one vote on the market legalization bill um, last year. I know this is kind of like insider baseball, but no, it's, it's, it's what happened. So it's like, it's a crazy convoluted process. Um, but that lawmaker lost his seat to um, a primary challenge uh, in in uh, September of this past year. So um, that was one of the, the, you know, one of the things that helped us succeed this year was we didn't have um, co-sponsors that were actively working against the legislation. Oh my God, so much there. Um, so <laughs> as a recap, and by the way, do not be fearful of going insider baseball because I think think that's the kind of knowledge uh, and that that's what I strive for with the podcast. Like that's part of the point of like in-depth conversation and you giving up your time is take time to listen and understand, go for a long drive, go for a walk, go for a bike ride, go for a walk on the beach, fuck it, like kick back and smoke a joint when it's legal and just listen, right? Like understand some of the details. So the insider baseball stuff to me is amazing for me to recap, go back, the governor says he's going to veto the ending arrest criminality simple majority, which then sends people that makes them uneasy about passing or voting for the establishing the market bill. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Yeah. I, gotcha. you know, it's crazy it's funny that that would trigger one would trigger the other. So like I said, the hold up, um, you know, this, this whole time since the, the very first bill in 2017 um, has basically been this three-fifths supermajority vote threshold. Um, and, you know, lawmakers kind of took advantage of that process. Um, you know, opponents um, took advantage of that process, knowing that we needed that increased vote hurdle. Um, so... You know, this was a very large piece of legislation, a lot of moving pieces, you know, changing one small aspect, you know, could gain us uh, support or could lose us support. And, um, you know, that was kind of a big part of what was happening. So one of the things that had happened was that the Speaker of the House, Pete Schwartzkopf, former law enforcement, um, head of the Democratic caucus in the House, um, was adamantly opposed to cannabis legalization um, and cited, you know, his support for law enforcement as a reason why he didn't support cannabis legalization. And law enforcement was pretty forthright that it was predominantly about 
the Fourth Amendment and being able to circumvent Fourth Amendment protections to be able to to search somebody based on the odor of cannabis alone. Mm. Um, so we had the Speaker of the House that was actively working against legislation and obstructing uh, the success of the legislation. So after the bill failed um, last year, or after the second version of the bill failed last year, um, so there was technically there was three ver- active versions of the bill just last year, um, but the two that got voted on um, last year. So when the when 305, when HB 305 failed in March, um, there was an understanding that if the bills were separated, that there was a possibility that um, Speaker of the House, Pete Schwartzkopf, would vote for regulation um, after the um, bill to legalize cannabis passed. So that was kind of like the understanding, um, you know, with separating the bills. And there was kind of, you know, there was conversations that, you know, if the bills were separated, there would be support for the regulation bill that we were having problems garnering that supermajority on if the bill to legalize the plant was already passed. And then through that, um, you know, we got set up <laughs> so, to agree by, um, you know, co-sponsors that were working with, you know, the obstructionists. So, and I, I don't want to read into it or put words in your mouth, but if pot becomes legal, you lose the Fourth Amendment right to search someone's car if you smell pot, cause it's legal to smell like pot. That was kind of the concern, but if that, so then I wouldn't have to vote to make that happen. But if it did happen without me voting for it, I will then vote to allow the market of pot to occur. Exactly, that's a hundred percent. It was that if it was already legal that um, Even though you know, I don't want those it to that be. were against okay. legalization mm-hmm. would want it regulated if it had already yeah. been made. And, and that that's a very weird, I don't know if weird's too strong of a word, but it's a very interesting way to look at it. And it kind of makes sense where it's like, dude, if it's already legal and I tried to stop it from being legal, we I might as well be involved in the marketing of it. And let's, let's regulate that. Um, so yeah, it's, it, man, that's, it's amazing that's how laws work and having to figure out those sort of details. Yeah, I mean, we call it the Delaware way. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> I think there there's a definition for the Delaware way that that and, you know, the obstruction process and everything that happened with cannabis legalization uh, definitely fits right under. So, uh, yeah, we were Delaware Wade is what we call it. I'm really curious and not trying to get you to be super gossipy, but when you had mentioned um, people working, sponsors working against you, why would, and again, if I ever put words in your mouth, feel free to correct me. Um, I, why would they sponsor if they're working against you? Uh, you know, we, <laughs> or is that a stupid question? Am I misreading that? Or no, like, I'm no, like, dude. I think that's the perfect question. I mean, I think that's an important question and, you know, we were completely blindsided by it. Um, you know, it took us completely by surprise. Um, we were not expecting that at all. We thought we had, you know, the support that we needed. Um, and it just goes to show you, you know, the amount of influence and power, 
um, that special interest groups and that the governor had, especially, uh, you know, last year. So, and it's interesting, but yeah, it was a former representative, Larry Mitchell, uh, was a co-sponsor, but, um, you know, he was sick the day that the bill got voted on, but he was voting on other legislation um, just prior to his camera turning off, um, which basically was the deciding vote. We were one vote short on that bill. Please say more. Now, now I'm so interested. Oh my God, dude. Like, so you call in to cast votes, but you're on, you're on a sick day, but you're remote. And then the camera happens to go off. Like, can you give me some time? Five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour before? Because I'm unsure like how that process works of when you're zooming in, how you cast a vote and how someone would time that. Yeah, interestingly enough, like, honestly, we didn't know exactly when it happened, just that it did happen because he had voted on other legislation just you know, earlier in that session and there's an agenda, you know, so the house will have an agenda and they have all the bills that they're going to vote on for that day. And they usually typically go in order or there's an understood, um, order of which those bills will be taken. And, um, I think, uh, typically, um, cannabis legalization was always, uh, scheduled for like the last bill because they knew that it was going to be a very lengthy floor debate and, you know, there was going to be a lot of, um, you know, arguments back and forth and debating and things like that. Um, so, um, sometime between when session started and he voted on a few of the bills and when our bill was taken up last, he was no longer on, on the zoom. And we didn't even know, uh, until the, the vote count, um, and they went through everything and, then we were like, oh my gosh, how are we one short? We had everybody. And then we realized um, that one of the co-sponsors was absent, Um, which typically, you know, especially in a friendly situation, if somebody was going to be absent um, that supported the legislation, they would communicate that with the prime sponsor. And, you know, perhaps they'd run the bill another day, you know, things like that. Um, But that's not what happened. Did you ever find out what happened with Larry Mitchell? He swore to us that he was legitimately sick. He was out with COVID, um, but his constituents didn't necessarily buy that story and uh, voted for his primary challenger. Gotcha. Yeah, I, dude, if I'm sponsoring something and I'm calling out sick, and this is such a stupid um, parallel. So I'm a basketball coach and I had like a legit stomach bug a day of a huge game, like huge rival game. And I had to call in sick and I'm like fluids. I'm Dayquil, Nyquil in. I'm doing everything I can to make it to like a 7 PM tip. And all I'm doing all day is texting my assistant coaches about like, Hey man, thinking about, and this is for stupid middle school basketball. I'm like, dude, should we start this person? What do you think about whatever man versus zone? Hey, make sure you're on alert for press break. Like all sorts of little stupid details that probably whatever bros take way too seriously. That's not legislation for an entire fucking state. (laughs) That's, That's 24 minutes of middle school basketball that way too many people take way too serious. And I'm like... 35 texts in between puking and not to besmirch whatever let Larry Mitchell if he was truly sick but 
I feel like you would find a way, especially if you've already signed up to be a sponsor, like you've already attached yourself to it. Right. Yeah, That's- absolutely. That's why it was so shocking. And, you know, just, you know, for a little perspective though, too. So we had a, a non-sponsor. So just, just um, a lawmaker tell us that he was supportive. Um, that day he was supportive up until when we started hearing the rumors that the governor was texting lawmakers, threatening to veto the bill that would, um, you know, remove the civil and criminal penalties. And so then that lawmaker went from a yes to a no, I'm sorry, I can't vote on this because the governor is going to veto the legislation, which makes absolutely no sense, you know, practically. But, um, you know, that was the excuse that we were given. And so then, um, you know, it comes time for the bill to be voted on. And then all of a sudden that lawmaker changed his vote. And we were like, oh, my gosh, like, wow, because we went into that into that session thinking, wow, okay, you know, we don't have the votes, like they're changing their votes. This isn't happening. Like, you know, this is going to be, you know, a long drawn out process. We don't know what's going to happen with another bill, you know, the whole nine. And then with that one lawmaker, you know, letting us know, never mind, he changed his mind, he's supportive. We were like, wow, this is really going to happen. Two minutes later, you know, we're one vote short. What happened? Oh, one of our co-sponsors, you know, who was voting on previous bills just, you know, an hour ago is no longer on the Zoom. You know, like what happened? Um, You know, you kind of put two and two together. And like I said, I think uh, the constituents in the um, one lawmaker's district certainly did not believe that story. When you say put two and two together, is that, and I'm so unfamiliar with the legislative process, like, is it common for one legislator to like text another guy or text another person and be like, dude, vote for this for me kind of a thing? No, no, I don't think it was that at all. I think that it was an orchestrated attempt to obstruct cannabis legalization. And there was a handful of bipartisan. It was it was lawmakers in both the Democratic and the Republican caucus working together, um, you know, to obstruct it along with, you know, the governor's pressure and everything that he was putting on lawmakers. Um, so that's that makes sense. Yeah, kind of. It it seems so frantic and the communication seems so vital and you always wonder about power players and influence. But what I wonder is Larry Mitchell's camera cuts off and then other person switches their vote. What's the connection between the two? You gain a vote and then you lose a vote. But what's the connection between the two? Because the lawmaker that voted yes, that was present during that hearing wouldn't have to take the political pressure and pressure from the constituents not voting no. And the person that was on the zoom that turned the camera off, that was sick had, you know, what they thought legitimate cover, you know, in terms of, um, you know, not having to take the fall for the legislation, not passing. So I get to vote. Yes, but it won't pass. So I won't be in the total doghouse and my constituents will be happy. And I get to tell them I voted yes, knowing zoom cameras off. It's not going to pass because that was the crucial vote. Exactly. Gotcha. And everybody knew it was the crucial vote because, you know, we've had years of votes, you know, this wasn't the first rodeo. This wasn't the first vote. We knew exactly where we were in terms of like vote count and, you know, everything like, 
that. So they knew that it was a make or break situation and that one vote would totally tank the legislation. How are you and the group communicating and like having your own polls about how things are going to go? Like, how do you get information versus disinformation kind of a thing? How do you trust anybody at this point in your life? My mind is spinning in the last 10 minutes. It's like house of cards. I just keep Netflixing this. I, I, I That's hysterical that you asked me that because I have, over the last month and a half since we legalized, I have been taking stock and inventory of me personally because I feel like I have become extremely cynical and distrustful (laughs) through this process. And I'm like, this is, you know, that's not how I want to be. Like, that's not where I started. And I got to kind of actively try to um, you know, I guess unprogram myself from, you know, these years of, you know, the, the obstruction and, you know, the whole process, like the convoluted process or whatever, and like try to actively deprogram myself from feeling that way. Um, and I think it's going to take a little while. (laughs) Yeah, man. Like I can't imagine what, what's it, maybe this is the right way to help me understand a little bit. How do you find a sponsor? Are they approaching you or you know people within their campaign that the values align? And then to, again, going back to like having one turn, I guess I'm looking at like the trust bridge that gets burnt. Maybe I'm looking at that wrong, but I'm like, well, how does that relationship even start to form where you approach somebody with, hey, I've worked for almost a decade on getting these words really specific and correct to serve a purpose. Will you please put these out there for people? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, first, I think it's different with, um, you know, every piece of legislation for cannabis reform specifically. Um, you know, that process began prior to us even organizing here in the state of Delaware with the Medical Marijuana Act in 2011, which was a process that began years before that bill passed um, with a handful of patients, as well as um, a national organization um, that helped organize those patients starting. I think I think the process began in 2008. Um, the first bill uh, for medical cannabis was introduced in 2009. Um, that bill didn't pass. And then a subsequent version was introduced in 2010, um, and then inevitably passed in 2011. Um, so there was already, uh, you know, the prime sponsors of that legislation, as well as the co-sponsors and, you know, everybody who supported. So we came in, we had a pretty good roadmap. Um, and that was the first thing that we, we tackled was going through the, um, the, Uh, roll call the vote counts for the medical marijuana act and you know going through the sponsors okay these are all the sponsors these were the co-sponsors these were the people that supported it these were the people that didn't support it and whatnot so the decriminalization and adult use um the very first version of, of the adult use bill had the same prime sponsors as the Medical Marijuana Act, which was um, former Representative Helene Keeley and Senator Margaret Rose Henry, um, who, you know, were pioneers uh, with medical marijuana. And certainly, you know, the bill that they drafted and passed is certainly not, you know, the intention of what 
actually got rolled out and the implementation, um, you know, I think was much, much different vision uh, for medical marijuana than what has been implemented. Um, but yeah, they were absolutely pioneers um, for championing medical cannabis reform and then into adult use cannabis policy reform as well. So then they retired at the end of session um, of 2018. Our bill was voted on within the last few days of session. Um, and then they retired literally days later after that bill failed. So then um, the, the Democratic caucus had actually uh, determined who out of their members were going to be the prime sponsors um, that were going to lead the adult use effort after uh, Representative Keeley and Senator Henry had retired and um, they chose our amazing champions who are just so dedicated, so incredibly, um, you know, on on the forefront of this whole thing and, you know, spectacular leadership in terms of, you know, their persistence of, you know, navigating all the different obstacles, all the hurdles, meeting with all the stakeholders, trying to, you know, piece together a, a very lengthy piece of legislation with multiple moving pieces. And, you know, obviously not everyone's going to be happy. We didn't get everything that we wanted, but, you know, their their leadership has been incredible, especially after everything, you know, that they've had to endure, you know, with trying to pass this legislation. When you say the Dem Democratic Caucus selected who would sponsor it, that's interesting because if, and again, this might be, this is probably my ignorance. If Pete Schwartzkopf is the speaker and he's a Democrat, but he's so anti, I'm so curious about why the Dems are so into passing this if the leader is not. Or am I thinking about that the wrong way? Do not do I not understand the dynamics of the political party? Uh, yeah, I mean, just because he's the leader and the speaker of the Democratic caucus in the House, you know, obviously lawmakers come to, um, you know, their positions in the General Assembly with a host of, you know, goals and legislation that they want to pass. And, you know, like I said, we've had significant, um, but public support for cannabis legalization across the political spectrum. Um, you know, it just so happens that, you know, there's more Democrats, a significant amount of more Democrats than Republicans that did support it. So there was definitely a, a huge appetite to take that up, regardless of, you know, the opposition from within their party or across the aisle. And, um, you know, they were determined to pass the legislation regardless. It's Okay. I um I, I always looked at pot as this weird it's aisleless <laughs> because it's liberal in the sense that whatever hippies smoke pot kind of a thing. But then at the same time you open up this market and business and tax base. And I'm like, isn't that kind of what everybody wants? Now I got a bunch of small businesses and entrepreneurial opportunities, and by the way, you get to tax it and you get to regulate it. And I never understood, aside from the Nancy Reagan, you know, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, gateway drug type stuff. I never understood why it was so 
why it was such such a difficult issue to pass in Delaware? Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, it's because, you know, well, the people of Delaware are undoubtedly the underdog um, in not just this legislation, but a number of uh, pieces of legislation across the board. Um, you know, without voter referendum, like many states have throughout the country, yeah. um, the people just have absolutely no power, um, in, you know, unless there's, you know, vast dedicated, you know, citizen organizing, you know, for specific issues and things like that. Um, and, you know, the lawmakers, we have, a, like I said, a very small legislature, probably um, one of the most accessible in the country. But on the other side of that, too, is, you know, they're just as accessible to all the special interest groups and the powerful influences that have helped, um, you know, obstruct this legislation for so long. And, Law enforcement, hands down, first and foremost, um, you know, the most powerful, um, you know, lobby organization or lobby agent, you know, in the entire state, um, you know, who opposed camps legalization um, that was had a great deal to do with, you know, the um, years of failure of the legislation. Um, and like I said, that predominantly had to do with uh, the Fourth Amendment implications in terms of, um, you know, they wanted to still be able to use the odor of cannabis as probable cause, um, you know, to be able to search an individual where typically they would either need a warrant from a judge or consent from the person to search the person or their vehicle or property. Um, so it, it gave law enforcement significant um, leverage, um, and we've definitely already seen an impact, a uh, positive impact in terms of uh, the protections and the rights that have been restored for, for people in the state of Delaware. So I guess the counter to that is, I mean, I've read a ton of articles that start with officer pulled over blank detected the odor of marijuana and went on to find, and then it's handgun, grams of this, right? Fentanyl. You just start listing all these terrible things you don't want in your neighborhood and you hope your child never consumes. So part of me, and I wonder if part of voters is like, wait, if someone's smoking pot and that allows cops to find more bad guys, I want them to find more bad guys and I want them to keep drugs and guns off the street. And I'm curious about the counter to that or if you spoke to law enforcement about why they're so adamant about wanting to keep the odor of marijuana to allow them to search without a warrant. Yeah, I mean, you know, first... I would say, you know, we have Fourth Amendment constitutional protections for a reason. I mean, they were written into our Bill of Rights. They weren't even, right. you know, additional amendments. But, it, you know, that's the Fourth Amendment. It's a part of the Bill of Rights for the people of this country, you know, to be free from um, search and seizure, you know, from the government and things like that. So we have a Bill of Rights that protects people from those types of government overreaches and intrusions, um, you know, to be free to, you know, travel 
in our country without being stopped and without being searched, um, without, you know, a warrant or our consent. So I think first and foremost, that that would be my argument. But, you know, then there's also the argument of, well, you know, a lot of people who do other drugs smoke cigarettes too. Should we start using the smell (laughs) of nicotine to circumvent the Fourth Amendment constitutional protections so that every time law enforcement smells um, a cigarette, they have access to be able to search you without a warrant uh, based on that odor. And I just, you know, and then the other side of it is, is, you know, we know how many people um, were stopped based on, you know, and charged with uh, cannabis possession offenses. We had nearly 6,000 a year uh, for simple cannabis possession offenses, which made up 52% of all the drug arrests in the state of Delaware. But that didn't even include the felony offenses for cannabis. These were just simple cannabis possession offenses. Um, So obviously, you know, this stop and frisk type of um, procedure was netting a significant amount of people um, and whatnot. But what we don't know is how many times law enforcement used that excuse, circumvented constitutional protections by searching somebody without a warrant or their consent and didn't find anything. Um, So there's a number of people that have had their rights violated over the years. And we actually had a young woman um, who gave public comment at many of our committee hearings over the last year and a half. She spoke at our override rally, but she was traveling in Seaford, Delaware. Um, She was a former veteran, um, you know, retired veteran. She was traveling. She's a student um, and she was just, you know, driving down the road. She got pulled over Um, when the officer pulled her over. Uh, you know, he asked for, you know, license, registration, the whole nine, but then said that he smelled uh, marijuana, smelled the odor of cannabis. Um, and she was told to step out of the vehicle. Um, and, you know, there were dogs that were brought in. They searched her vehicle. And the story, you know, that she tells is that, you know, they're they're rifling through all her stuff. She's embarrassed. There's people passing her on the side of the road. Um, you know, looking at her and she's an upstanding member of society. Like I said, a student, a, um, a, you know, honor roll student, um, former veteran, the whole nine. And, um, you know, then they get to her trunk, they open up her trunk and they see her Navy uniform and they're like, oh, you know, you're Navy. And then she talks about her service and everything. And then, you know, they can you know finish conducting the search but they never found any weed so what did they smell yeah why did she have to step out and you know the same thing happened to dsu students in georgia and our governor who vetoed the legislation that would have put that protection uh you know into law for the in the state of delaware um condemned georgia officers for doing the exact same thing forgot about that So, I mean, you know, it's a flagrant violation of our constitutional protections. And quite frankly, you know, it's it's lazy police work because, um, you know, uh, and that's the other part of it is that um, stops like that have been challenged um, and litigated, um, you know, in our courts. And 
A lot of other states have gone further um, to say that obviously it is unconstitutional. Um, our state didn't go quite as far, but certainly made um, a judicial ruling that would limit those type of um, searches. So inevitably, you know, this was going to be something that law enforcement was going to have to change their practices for anyway, because it's quite, um, quite frankly, it's unconstitutional. It's super subjective. And it's, it, it, in my head, as again, a nobody, I just, I'm like, all right, you get pulled over for something, right? Like there's something that happened, a suspicion or an actual violation. And then the, cause you can't get the odor before the pull over, right? So you get pulled like over. Walking down the street though. Yeah, correct. On, no, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm talking about just straight up car pullovers, side of the highway type stuff, side of the country road. Right. So you get pulled over for something, whether it's suspicion or actual, and then the odor is an additional, which then allows search. But it's subjective because like, dude, I was in a college class and I sat next to a lady that loved her some patchouli. And I swore to God, she was high every day. And she's like, Sean, I'm pregnant. I don't smoke. I really like the smell of patchouli. I'm a hippie. And I was like, oh. And you're like, dude, what if you just have a cologne that triggers an officer's nose, olfactory sensors, and all of a sudden they're like, smells like pot, get out. Exactly. Like yeah. That's a weird spot to be like, are we okay or not okay with? And I feel like I, personally... I don't like subjectivity. I, I, I like, you have to actually have an offense to start fucking with me. You shouldn't be able to just on a hunch, innocent till proven guilty type stuff, right? Like you have to have something to mess with me. You shouldn't have a hunch to mess. Yeah. And, you know, I think that brings up a really good point because we actually had um, a former undercover officer that worked undercover here in the state of Delaware, um, who's obviously no longer undercover. He actually works a different job, but, um, you know, he came out in support of cannabis legalization, um, back in 2017. Um, he gave public testimony at some of our bill hearings. He also gave public testimony at the adult use cannabis task force through that process. Um, as well as, um, actually spoke at a couple of our events and he said that it was one of those things that was like an unspoken, um, you know, thing that law enforcement, if they pulled up to a car and they wanted to search that vehicle, or if they wanted to search that person, that all they would do is look at each other and they say, you smell weed, right? And it would just be like, everybody was in greens. Yep, we smell weed. And it was just something, you know, so it's the real perceived yeah. or alleged odor of cannabis. So it's it's extremely subjective, you know, with, with that as well. Yeah, I and this is a total, I don't even know if I want to get into my philosophy of DUIs. Um, but like the penalty of, you get pulled, whatever, you swerve, but the DUI penalty for the tragedy that could occur, but hasn't, it seems similar in the pot realm where part of the DUI penalty is you're drunk, you could kill somebody. That's terrible. It's like, yeah, but all I did was switch a lane without my turn signal. And maybe I had a little too much to drink, but I didn't actually 
physically cause harm, but yet I'm getting the consequences as if I did. And it's like, oh my God, I, whatever. I, I was around some people smoking at a party. So I got like pot smell on my jacket and now I'm driving home. And now you're going to treat me like I did all this pot. I have all this pot in my system just on an odor. And it's like, why are you putting all the possible ramifications of this on me if it's not actually me, if I haven't actually done anything? I think that's where I start, I don't know, like that's where I wanna like talk to lawyers and figure out what is right. I wanna like, I wanna, I wanna travel in time to like find Aristotle and be like, what would be the philosophical way to figure this out? Yeah. Sorry, I was rambling on that. Well, I mean, I would just say, you know, like to quote Benjamin Franklin, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase uh, a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Yeah, that's the Patriot Act argument, right? Like, why are we giving up? Like, everybody's scared. Shit's going to hell. But should the government be able to listen to everything on all of our phones? It's it, it seems very similar. Um. Let me, let me try to bring it back to how this passed. So you get vetoed at the governor's desk and then you don't get vetoed. What's the difference? How do you not get vetoed the sixth time? An incredible amount of public pressure. I mean, you know, just relentless advocacy. Like I said, the persistence and dedication from our prime sponsors that wouldn't give up because I think there would be a... Typically, I think that there'd be some lawmakers that faced with, you know, the lack of the veto override and lack of support from your own caucus and lack of support from the governor and everything like that, that, you know, they might cave or give in. But, you know, with the persistence of our prime sponsors, Representative Edozinski and Senator Trey Party, just, you know, to, you know, consistently you know, decide that they were going to move forward with this in the face of all the hurdles and um, opposition, um, coupled with, you know, the incredible amount of public support, um, you know, the people that just didn't give up. Um, and we made sure that people were educated about what happened with the voter, with the veto override, um, you know, through the election, we actually put out um, a voter guide for each election um, where we put out a candidate survey um, and then we'll also put out uh, information about previous voting history as well as previous you know sponsorship and support um, and just trying to educate the voters about where their lawmakers are and where um, you know other candidates that are running for office in their district are on cannabis legalization and, you know, a combination of all of it, as well as, you know, our dedicated coalition members who helped us mobilize throughout the state and, you know, increase that public support and just get as many people taking action and saying, you know, what happened last year was wrong. Um, and we should have already passed this and make sure you're passing it this year and make it a priority. So do you think it was more Carney was worried voters would be upset about him? Or do you think it was the House and the Senate 
were going to override his veto because the House and Senate felt the pressure from their constituents. Yes, I think the latter. I think that the the General Assembly felt the pressure from their constituency um, and uh, were, I mean, I, I think the message was sent um, with the significant amount of support because we actually passed both of the pieces of legislation with um, super majorities and actually more votes than they needed. Um, so we were actually able to, we could have lost um, a couple of votes and still passed the override because we passed with more votes that were needed um, than, you know, the vote hurdle to override. So I think, you know, first of all, the General Assembly sending that strong message to the governor uh, with the amount of support that the bills passed with. Um, plus, I'm pretty sure that he probably reached out to a number of the lawmakers, especially lawmakers that, you know, he was able to work with the year before to stall it for another year. Um, and probably, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but I'm like, um, I'm sure that it's likely that, uh, you know, he received the feedback that there just wasn't the support to derail this this year. And then, of course, you know, like I said, we showed up to his town halls and everything and, you know, putting that public pressure on him as well. And that was one of the things that he said, you know, during that last town hall that we were at in April, um, you know, is that, you know, he's he's tired of talking about it. He's tired of hearing about it um, and everything like that. So, like I said, it goes back to people like you that were like, you know what, I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to let my voice be heard you know, this is wrong and he needs to hear from me. So thank you for, you know, your support. And thanks to the thousands of people throughout the state of Delaware that let their voice be heard. Is it just a weird part of the process where if you have the override votes, but they're scared, or I shouldn't say scared, they do not override. And then you go back a second time and it gets passed. And then they're like, you know what? This is the second time we are actually going to override. Does that just have to happen or why not override the first time? Because I remember me personally hearing about the House and Senate not overriding and being like, the fuck, man? Like you voted for it once. If the dude vetoes it, just vote for it again and pass the fucking thing. Like why are like how is that complicated? How does your vote change because some like because the head of the party vetoes it? That made yeah. no sense to me. And I, I, I guess that's um, like non-political or insensitive of me to frame it that way. But I'm like, I'm like, dude, you voted for it once. Just vote for it again. Get, get what you're supposed to get. I, I didn't understand that. So like, like that led me to be like, is that just part of the political process where, yeah, we did it. Oh, it got shot down. Oh, you still want it. Okay. Now we really care. No, I mean, I, I think that it goes back to the significant public pressure, uh, the election. Um, there was like uh, several lawmakers that retired, um, you know, as well. So uh, there's okay. new lawmakers that came in. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely don't think that this happens without significant public pressure. Um, you know, so like last year, uh, you know, like with the override and everything, um, you know, I, I haven't gone back and asked these lawmakers specifically, um, but we heard, um, you know, through rumors and stuff that 
there were um, promises made to some of the lawmakers who changed their votes. Um, like I said, I don't know how true that is. I've not cooperated those facts um, at all, but that's what we were being told was that there were some promises that were made. Um, so um, I'm not exactly sure if those promises were fulfilled, but I know <laughs> that you know through the election and with all the public pressure that there was certainly a change of heart um, with some of the lawmakers who just the year before had, you know, um, been a part of the effort to derail it. Do you know how many were replaced, if any at all, um, from the failure to override the veto to the governor just not signing as far as House and Senate? How many members were replaced? Uh, no, I don't have that information offhand, but it was uh, like a handful of, um, you know, new lawmakers that were voted in. And like I said, some of some of the lawmakers just simply retired. They weren't voted yeah, out or outside, anything yeah. like that. Gotcha. Um, you know, they simply retired. But um, yeah, you know, the there was at least one seat that changed in terms of, uh, you know, the person, like I said, Representative Larry Mitchell, who either did or didn't have something to do with it. I think that's up for everybody's interpretation. But, you know, I think the interpretation that his constituents came up with was that he probably likely did have a part to do with, you know, the failure of that legislation. The thing I'm uh, taking away is um, almost it, it don't be deterred, right? Like if you feel this, and it doesn't get passed and you feel like you're screwed over, don't stop, double down, find more people, apply more pressure, right? Like don't accept the loss and go out and make your voice heard. And then that's how you get changed. Like a law doesn't pass the first time, doesn't matter, we're getting it the next time. Doesn't, doesn't yeah. pass the second time, doesn't matter, we're getting it the third time. And you just like, you want failure to propel you to victory. <laughs> like that almost has to be the mentality is what I'm taking away from this conversation because for you to advocate like this for 10 years is amazing to me. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for the kind words. Like I said, you know, like I'm, I'm the spokesperson, I'm the leader, you know, I co-founded these organizations, but it's certainly not just me. It's thousands and I'm right. not exaggerating to one degree, like literally thousands of Delawareans across the state that helped achieve this victory along with, um, you know, dozens of our organizations who their members helped achieve this victory as well. Um, but yeah, I agree hundred percent. Be persistent. Don't ever give up. Don't let, you know, the, the failure of the legislation, um, you know, deter you, you know, stay persistent and determined and, you know, keep advocating. I love what you said. Like that was exactly like our mentality is we didn't get it this time. So we just have to double down, increase efforts, you know, recruit more volunteers and, right. you know, continue to build our list, get more coalition supporters and continue to build this until we can get it done. Um, and I never asked you, and I usually don't like time frame wise, but I should have almost led with this question. So feel free to take as long or as little as you'd like with it. Why do you care? Why is this a passion of yours? Why are you doing all this, Zoe? 
because <laughs> it's the right thing to do. And, you know, so many people have been harmed by this bad public policy that has real world, you know, life consequences for people, um, you know, and it's, it's unjust. It's horrific to see. I'm a paralegal in my day job. So I've seen firsthand, you know, the devastation that prohibition has caused for people, for their families, for communities. Um, for me personally, I'm, you know, pretty much a lifetime consumer. I've been consuming 28 years, um, you know, growing up in the 90s and the just say no era, you know, as a teenager, you know, like I was, you know, I guess, exposed firsthand, you know, to the misinformation campaigns about cannabis in the 90s. Um, and then like fast forward to my early 20s, um, you know, I was dealing with depression and anxiety for a number of reasons, um, you know, including the loss of my mother and not having um, parents in my life as a teenager. Um, you know, I, and I was basically put on, uh, you know, anti-depression medicine and anti-anxiety medicine, which was harmful pharmaceuticals um, that basically, you know, obstructed like my way of life. I couldn't function, um, you know, on those pharmaceuticals. Um, it, in my opinion, they were making me worse. Um, and, you know, cannabis-based therapy, in my opinion, probably saved my life in terms of, you know, quality of life at the very least, mm. um, you know, in terms of, you know, the pharmaceuticals that, that I was put on in my early twenties. Um, and then apart from that, you know, I was actually, uh, a directly impacted person, um, as a teenager, um, I was targeted in school, um, as a consumer, as a teenager, I mean, we don't, we advocate for responsible use. Obviously we don't want minors consuming cannabis. Um, but I was a consumer in my teenage years and, um, I was targeted in school and instead of school showing me compassion for, um, you know, a kid who recently lost their mother and doesn't have a father and is being raised by their grandparents, um, instead of showing me compassion. I was arrested and expelled from school, um, you know, which led to even more depression, obviously, in my 20s and things like that. Um, and, you know, the, the journey for me to, you know, become, a, you know, um, you know, who I am in life now and a contributing member of society uh, definitely, you know, took a number of years longer than I think a lot of other people, you know, that don't have to go through things like that. Um, so the firsthand experience of the devastation that prohibition um, causes, um, as well as everything that I see through my work. Um, and then the other side of it, the research, you know, like, it's safer than alcohol. Uh, you know, research shows that it's objectively safer than alcohol. Um, <laughs> it's safer than pharmaceuticals. It's it's safer than a lot of over-the-counter medications. Um, and it's a plant that's completely non-toxic. There's no way for anybody to die from an overdose. Yet, you know, we have prohibition that's ruining people's lives because of, you know, the prohibition of this plant. So... Um, you know, I think the myriad of experiences, you know, led me to become an activist.
uh, for cannabis legalization in my 20s. Um, and then, of course, a community leader here in the state of Delaware starting in 2013. Do you have five or 10 more minutes to get into the targeted in school aspect of this? Uh, you know, I honestly, I, know, I have the bathroom and um, <laughs> it's going on, it's kind of late and yeah. I'd rather not get into this. I understand. Know, no, no, completely understandable. Out, Zoe, thank you so much for coming on, um, speaking so fucking eloquently about, like, I'm so impressed with your knowledge and recall of everything. Um, and I appreciate your work, dude. I appreciate you advocating for what you and a ton of Delawareans want. Like it's, it's beyond admirable. So thank you. I really appreciate your work. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. And thanks for the great work that you do. And I really appreciate you covering our legalization efforts. Um, and thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah. And anybody who's listening at this point, um, any links and whatnot, we will throw in the description. So anybody who's looking to get more information will be able to find it there. All right, man. Thank you. Enjoy your night. And I really do appreciate your time. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate you covering all our efforts throughout the last 10 years and getting into such great detail because um, you know, this was really the first time that I've had an opportunity to go into such great detail with some of these, you know, behind the scenes aspects, you know, that a lot of people don't realize. So thank you again for that. Right. Dude, it was so cool. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I loved it. I geeked out the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It was super fun. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, man. Enjoy your night. Thanks again. Have a good one. Huge thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Homeboy's been down since just about day one. If you have not already, search him up, Andre Psyche, on social media. Give my man a follow for the fuck of it. Please, almost more importantly, do not forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Getting to Know You pod on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. Five stars, five stars, five stars. If you have not already... Continue with your gracious clicking, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And if you're feeling super generous, as in that ching-ching monetary type, go to our Patreon and support the pod for as little as $2 a month. Oh yeah, and if you know anyone who'd like to be a guest on the pod, go ahead and send their contact info our way. Slide them up into my DMs. Later.